When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and as always, so thankful that you'd let me come join you for Scripture study. Today we have some incredible things to talk about as a sequel to what we began discussing last week. Last week was more Moses' backstory, and we saw him surrounded by particularly righteous women who ended up delivering the Deliverer. Well, today, as we get into part two, it's that Deliverer returning the favor and delivering all of Israel. But it is amazing, and this struck me as I've been thinking about last week and heading into this one, how much time has passed between all of that. Uh, Moses was, he spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's court. He was 40 when he, when he went out and saw that Egyptian beating the Hebrew and, and was moved to intervene. And then when he flees off to Midian, it's another 40 years before he comes back uh, to begin the deliverance back in Egypt. And it struck me as I was pondering children. Children born for a noble purpose and children with a divine destiny who struggle and stray. Uh, I meet so many of you that, have, that are in that situation, worried and concerned and praying and fasting over children that have left the church for a time. And I hope that you feel that that's the case, that it's just for a time. The question is, how long will that time last? We don't know in, this, in the parable of the prodigal son how long he was off in that far country before he finally came to himself and began the homeward trip. In Moses' case, and I'm not saying he's wayward, anything but, but picture, oh, Amram and Yocheved, for example, this incredible mother and father who put their lives on the line for three months and then, and then cast their bread upon the water. They watch their son float away and... At the mercy of the currents of the Nile, think of that in terms of your own children. And when you see them begin to be pulled by the cultural currents away from the safety of a parent's embrace. And as those children begin floating down their Nile and you wonder what will become of them, will they remember who they really are? Because they're now out in Egyptian influence. It was 40 years before Moses had that stirring within to go and see the burdens that were being placed upon his brethren. But then when he intervened and was, was found out, he's, I, they're, they're going to know I'm the one who killed the Egyptian, and then he flees. It's interesting that I think sometimes we have these experiences with our loved ones who have strayed or who have wandered, and, and they have this inkling of something that they've missed. They come back a little or for a moment, but don't end up staying. I, again, I just picture this from the Hebrew perspective. Aaron's still alive, Miriam's still alive. We don't know about his parents, but his brother and sister are there, and surely they know who Moses is and what he's destined to become. And when they see him make those first steps back, I can only imagine how excited they would be, only to then get no news. 
and hear nothing of him as if those hopes are lost. He's gone. And 40 more years in Midian before a burning bush stirs within him and he turns aside to see and then everything changes. And even though he feels inadequate and is hesitant and hasn't passed down the covenant to his son and Zipporah has to step in and all those things that we studied last week, still the Lord is drawing him back into his role of deliverer. And when he returns to Egypt, as we'll see today, him grow into that, that role. It's an incredible evolution on Moses' part. And I just, I don't know, this isn't in my notes. I hadn't planned on sharing this to begin today's lesson. But just feeling concern for your concern and wanting to give you hope that no matter how, how much time has passed, there are stirrings within. You, you raised them well. You planted seeds. You, they, they know even when they would not know. There's amulet for you. And it may be 40 years before they start looking again. It may be 40 years before they're drawn to see their old community. And then they may flee because they might not feel welcome yet. There might be a concern of, I'm going to be misjudged, which is exactly what happened with Moses. I came back with real intent and with hopes of, of finding myself again and finding my old community. But maybe it's us that's not making them feel welcome. Maybe it's us that's judging them. And so they flee in a different direction. But there are still burning bushes off in the distance waiting to to remind them who they are and point them back home. And even if another 40 years pass before these prodigals return, that is the ultimate destination, a return trip. And with the Lord God Almighty, I am that I am, causing to come into being, come back into being, the person that they've always really been, Prepare yourself for the kinds of things we'll see today. When Moses, 80 years after the fact, comes blazing back, burning bush behind him, ready to make the difference that only he can make. I, I feel that deeply, and I have that hope for myself and for all of you. So let's dig in. Now, before we jump into Exodus, and we'll be in chapter 7 through 13 today, we have a lot of material to cover, but it's all glorious. I do want to take a quick field trip to the New Testament, if that's okay. One of the amazing things about what we're studying uh, this week and next and last and this whole Exodus account is how much it factored into the later history of Israel. There are psalms that sing about these stories. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood is still making movies about it, right? Yeah, as secular as Hollywood is. They just can't get away from the Exodus account. And in the New Testament, there is a scene where someone recounting the story of the Exodus, it ends up costing him his life. Now, I'm a, his, a historian, and I would hope that by recounting history, I'm not putting my life on the line. But that was the case with Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. We, uh, we, we know that story, at least the aftermath. Uh, his own martyrdom, seeing the father and the son at his right hand, uh, we know that story and love it. But I think sometimes we, we skip the whole story leading up to that martyrdom and miss the message 
that Stephen was trying to teach, the message that cost him his life. And it was a history lesson. He just walks them through the history of ancient Israel, focusing a lot on Moses. Now, I thought the Israelites loved the Moses story. I thought they try to reenact the Exodus every year in Passover. Well, they do, but not the way that Stephen was teaching it. I've heard it said that history is putting the past in service to the present. And Stephen's present was focused on defending Jesus Christ and reminding his, his Jewish hearers, particularly the ones that had rejected him, that they missed the boat, that they missed their Messiah. But it wasn't too late. They could repent. They could change. Peter was teaching the same message. But the way that Stephen did it was by recounting the history of Moses with an eye to Moses as a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. So I want to read these verses to you without a ton of outside commentary, but I want you to be thinking, this is Jesus he's talking about. Every little hint he drops, or I should say everything he says about Moses is a dropped hint about Jesus. So listen with that reality in mind. Acts chapter 7, verse 17. When the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham. So this is the time for the Abrahamic covenant to begin to be fulfilled. This is the time to return to the promised land. The people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. You saw that exact phrase in Exodus chapter 1. The same, Pharaoh that is, dealt subtly with our children. There's the subtlety of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. So there's the slaughter of the innocents in Egypt, which would be a foreshadowing of the slaughtering of the innocents in Bethlehem. So we're already starting to see, okay, I'm talking about Moses, but I'm really talking about Jesus. Wink, wink, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Verse 20, in which time Moses was born? and was exceeding fair, that's that goodly child we met last week, and nourished up in his father's house three months, three sleepless, stressful months for mom and dad. When he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And Stephen is describing even, this is before the Exodus. So mighty in words and deeds, it makes you wonder what Moses was doing as an Egyptian, those first 40 years, and were people seeing in him some kind of power that went beyond the norm, uh, recognizing his strength, recognizing his might. Well, that might explain some of the turning of the hearts of the Egyptians toward Moses later on. Uh, not all the Egyptians, obviously. And do you see the same happening with Jesus, a goodly child, one who was mighty in words and deeds, and some would heed and some would not. Verse 23, when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. I love the way he describes that. It came into his heart. For 40 years, he'd been taking for granted all the work that the Israelite slaves were doing for, for his people, the Egyptians. But then something stirs within that those, those hints of who he really was. As I was talking about those prodigal children coming to themselves. Well, this is his moment. It came into his heart. There's the Lord planting. Actually, the seed was already planted, just coaxing it out of the soil. He went to visit his brethren. He knows this. I'm one of them. They are me. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him 
and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Again, an amazing insight into what's happening in Moses' mind and heart. He supposed they would have understood. My brethren, don't you get it? I'm one of you. And I hope you'll forgive me for not being among you for the last 40 years. But I still have gifts to give and help to offer and service to render if you'll just let me come home. That is true of every wandering prodigal. As God puts it into their heart to return and they feel some sense of reassurance, I do believe my brethren will understand. Do we? In Jesus' case, did they? Coming into Jesus' heart at age 30, it's time for my ministry to begin. And assuming, hoping, believing, supposing is Stephen's word, that his brethren, the Jews, would understand, I've come to deliver you, and yet you reject me? You do not hearken? You don't understand why I've come? In verse 26, the next day Moses showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? You see what Moses was hoping? To set them at one again. If there's one thing that sin causes, it is separation. It's what spiritual death is, separation from God. But just like sin breaks the first great commandment and severs that vertical connection, it breaks the second connection as well, the second great commandment. And it sets us at variance one with another. It It causes conflict. And Moses' role in his own mind was to set them at one again. I want to unite my people in righteousness. Sirs, ye are brethren. You're the same house of Israel. Can't we understand that? We are each other's keepers because we are each other's brethren. Jesus came to do the same thing, to set us at one again. To bring in Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and free, and to make us one in him. Do we understand that? Well, they didn't. Not to Moses and not to Jesus. And so Stephen goes on. He that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at his saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Now this idea of being a ruler and a judge will come up again. Those were the concerns. That, is that the only reason you've come? To, to push us down under your, your authority, this ruler, or to pass judgment upon us and condemn us? Is that how people were picturing Jesus? Is that how people picture prophets and apostles today? They're missing the point. In verse 30, when 40 years were expired, so there's the second 40-year period of departure, There appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, that's when he turned aside to see, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet. For the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen 
the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. And I have heard their groaning, and I am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. You see how Stephen is walking them through everything we saw last week? This is a beautiful history lesson. But think about the coming down of Christ, the condescension of the Savior, who has seen and heard and knows and is come down in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us so that he can deliver us. Verse 35, Stephen continues, This Moses, whom they refused, and again, I'm talking about Jesus here, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? There it is again. The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. We'll see the Red Sea and the wilderness begin next week. But to understand what Stephen is getting at, notice, by the way, the way he subtly changed the titles. You accused, or they accused Moses, and you're accusing Jesus of trying to usurp power and authority over people. That this is Jesus, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. That this is Moses, the prince of Egypt. No, you were afraid he would be a ruler and a judge. But what had he come to be? A ruler and a deliverer. Interesting shift. Ruler is still there both times. And yes, he is king of kings and lord of lords. The day will come where all shall, every, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is the Christ. So he is ruler. But where you thought he was a condemning judge, he has come as a merciful deliverer. And I hope we wrap our hearts around that when it comes to Jesus. That instead of fleeing from him out of fear of condemnation, the way J Jacob didn't want to see Esau, the way Joseph's brothers didn't want to come back to him. Is he judge? Yes, of course. But what kind? He's a judge that is seeking to deliver us from the natural consequences of our own sin. He knows what we deserve. There's just judgment. But he knows what we're up against. That's why he came down to see and to experience so that then mercy would be moved to intercede. And a mere judge would become a much more understanding deliverer because of what he's gone through. Verse 37, Stephen then makes this story clear. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. Now we see Stephen beginning to reveal the purpose behind this message. Oh, this history lesson is not about the past. It's about the present. And who is present among us? The second Moses. Moses prophesied, someday another prophet would come like unto me. Well, he's here. Or at least he was. Jesus came among us to deliver us from the bondage of sin. No, no greater Pharaoh than Satan himself, but Jesus conquered him and delivered us if we only had ears to hear. They wouldn't listen to Moses. You're not listening to Jesus. 
And what is the result? We will wander in the wilderness ourselves until we finally come to understand what Jesus came to accomplish and then cross our Jordan rivers into our promised land. The way Stephen explains it, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, if it's starting to get confusing, are you talking about Moses or are you talking about Jesus? Well, lean into that confusion. He's talking about both. But I love how he describes those years in the wilderness as the church in the wilderness. Now he's getting a little more obvious. This church that Christ has set up, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. This house of Israel in, in the ancient period was a church in the wilderness. And Moses gave them what? Lively oracles. Now, that's an amazing statement. We think of, we'll see this in a couple of weeks, as God is carving commandments into the tablets of stone. Those are the oracles of God. This is God speaking from Sinai. But I love how Stephen describes them. They're the lively oracles. These are words with life within them. The problem is when we make Scripture just a dead page instead of a living messenger, Something, when it's just a catalog of past revelation instead of a catalyst for ongoing revelations to you and to me. And that's where Jesus really came in. That this is, remember what he says to the, the scribes and Pharisees who knew their Hebrew Bible so well. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them there is eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. The oracles are <laughs> absolutely important. Where, where are the lively oracles? Where are the living words? And Jesus was the living word of God. Especially for us Latter-day Saints, it's not just about past prophets. It's about present ones. It's not just about old oracles. It's the lively ones that we're after who can continue to lead us through this wilderness to our promised land. Well, Stephen is going to finish this history lesson. In verse 39, he says, To whom, so he's still talking about Moses, a.k.a. Jesus, to whom our fathers would not obey. They wouldn't obey Moses. You didn't obey Jesus. But thrust him from them, just like you've done with Jesus, and in their hearts turned back again unto Egypt. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But the way Stephen phrases it, oh, no, physically they never went back to Egypt, but spiritually they did. Emotionally, mentally they did. In their hearts they turned back. Sound like Lot's wife? Well, there's going to be a pillar of broken promises there. We'll see that. In fact, the way Stephen describes it, they said unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Like I said, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, but that's what the Jews of Jesus's day were doing offering sacrifices not unto the God of Israel, which was ministering among them in the flesh, but rather an idol of their own invention, rejoicing in the works of their own hands, what they had made, what was meant to be a living oracle, into a dead word. Are we guilty of the same? You see what happens here? By then, Stephen totally makes it clear. And as they're thinking, oh, I love this history lesson, love this history lesson. And it says, well, guess who you are in the story? 
you're the, you're not the Israelites in this story, you're the Egyptians. And with that, they are up in arms. How dare you? How dare you turn our own history on its head? To which Stephen could have said, actually, I'm not the one doing that. You are. And they picked up stones and they, and they slew him. Because he understood what the Exodus story was meant to accomplish in his day. Do we understand what it is meant to accomplish in ours? Are we the Israelites or are we the Egyptians? Do we recognize Moses for who he is? Do we see Jesus in his role as deliverer? Or are we only afraid of him in his role as judge? Or perhaps to make it a little more personal. As Moses has come among us, as prophets and apostles, lively oracles in the land, delivering God's true message, since they are true messengers. How do we react to them? How do we respond? Will we hearken and hear? Or will we thrust them out and turn our hearts away? You see, what we'll study today oh, has so much relevance as far as listening to prophets of God. And I think, unfortunately, we live in a day of anti-authoritarianism and anti-institutionalism, especially among the rising generation, to the point that we have a hard time trusting in prophets and apostles. And I worry sometimes that we look to them the way those initial Israelites looked to Moses. You're just trying to rule over us. You're trying to judge us. By the way, those are exactly the same things that Laman and Lemuel said. You take the, the, the whole house of Israel in its negative dimension and, and crystallize them into two characters, and that's Laman and Lemuel. We'll see that in the, the, the wilderness wanderings and the murmur, murmur, murmur. There's Laman and Lemuel for you. But what they said, Nephi, you're just trying to be the, uh, the ruler over us, and we're the older brothers. We're the ones that deserve the birthright. So ruling, and then the other, they say about their father, he judged the people of Israel. And he judged them poorly because they weren't as wicked as he said. Come on, they lived the law of Moses. Well, parts of it maybe. But the interesting thing for you and me, are, are we feeling the same kinds of concerns? Are we accusing, whether or not we do it vocally, but in our hearts, are we turning back to Egypt because we're afraid that prophets and apostles are simply authoritarian, power-hungry rulers over us? or harsh, judgmental judges of our behavior, oh, there is an incredible amount of relevance in what we'll see. Uh, just as Stephen made clear for his people, I hope the Spirit will make clear for you and me. What will our response be to the Word of God and the call of true messengers? Think about that as we end our field trip to the New Testament and return to the Old, where we find Moses and Aaron back in Pharaoh's court at the beginning of chapter 7. Verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Now the Joseph Smith translation softens that, takes both uh, parties down a notch. Uh, instead of God, it's prophet, and instead of prophet, it's spokesman. So the real way it would read is, See, I have made thee a prophet to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy spokesman. Either way, there needs to be someone above Pharaoh, someone with great power, someone who is speaking through a messenger to make sure Pharaoh understands what he's up against. And honestly, from Pharaoh's perspective, 
considering all the plagues of Egypt that we're going to see today, then what Moses might as well have been a lowercase g God. I mean, he obviously has more power than the, the pantheon of Egypt. But as Joseph is saying, no, but prophets aren't gods, okay? We're taking it down a notch. It's not Moses as God, it's Moses as prophet. And it's not Aaron as prophet, it's Aaron as mere spokesperson for the prophet. Now think about that in terms of our own experience with prophets and apostles today. It is wrong to turn prophets into gods. And I think sometimes we fall into that trap, especially when we're, we're young in our, in our faith and our testimony. And we just think, oh, they walk on water and they are perfect and they can't possibly make a mistake. They are infallible, even though they never claim to be. And unfortunately, if we hold to that, and if we've turned prophets into gods, then we're up for disappointment when, when humanity peeks through the divinity. And how can it not, since we're all human beings, prophets and apostles included? And unfortunately, I've said this before, we go from 100%, it, we're proving a contrary, right? Or at least we're supposed to be between humanity and divinity in the servants of God. And we went from 100% divinity and 0% humanity. And then instead of correcting and recognizing both and proving the contrary, we overcorrect. And now it's 100% humanity and 0% divinity. We were wrong at the start and now we're wrong at the, at the end. Prophets are not gods, nor do they claim to be. But then there's this other irony that we have turned mere spokespeople into prophets. And whether it's a politician or a pundit, whether, whether it's a celebrity or, or social media influencer, even if it's a, it's a teacher, we mere teachers are not prophets. Uh, we're just spokespeople for the prophets. And I hope we are doing justice to the words they are trying to convey. That's important for us in our day of so many spokespeople and learning to recognize true messengers for who they are. A true messenger who is a prophet for a true God. Again, how do we recognize them? Look at verse 2 and 3. To Moses, God says, Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Again, there's JST. Pharaoh will harden his heart, as I said unto thee, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So there's Pharaoh's ever-hardened heart once again, and it's on him, not on God. But notice what the Lord said at the beginning. How do I recognize true messengers? They speak all that God commands them. Not just the stuff that, that's a little easier on the ear. Hard sayings, who can hear them? Well, prophets are willing to do it. Yes, they speak in love, but they speak the truth in love. And sometimes that truth can come off, oh, a little hard to hear. That does not dissuade true prophets from giving it to us. In verse 4, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, that's the Lord's strong hand he mentioned last week, and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And is that what it'll take for us to recognize true prophets in our midst? Will it take great judgments? Will we have to feel the Lord's heavy hand that prophets were trying to warn us and prepare us for whatever it was coming? The very things we fear to lose most are the exact things that those judgments will end up taking from us. Thus the need to hearken and heed the words of living prophets. Verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. 
Remember that was Pharaoh's initial question last week when Moses and Aaron first come in to say the God of the Hebrews demands that you let his people go? Picture Pharaoh scoffing, his people? No, they're my people, believe me. And I'm going to keep them that way. And this God of the Hebrews, I've never heard of him. Who is the Lord, he asks. And so what's the answer here? You shall know that I am the Lord. In fact, keep your eye out for that. It will come up very often in today's material. We'll see it again in the book of Ezekiel. Whether you're trapped in Egypt, Exodus, or you're trapped in Babylon, Ezekiel, there is a tendency to forget the Lord your God. After all, you're in enemy territory. This is an away game instead of a home one. And you've got a, a, a hostile crowd in front of you. Easy to forget God. And so what's the purpose of these plagues we'll see today? To introduce Egypt to the God of Israel in unmistakable ways. You shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 6, then Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So did they. And true prophets always do. So one of the ways you can recognize them. Come what may, and whatever the opposition might be, true messengers do what God has commanded. They say all the words that they are given. Now by this time, it says in the next verse, Moses was four score years old. There's 80. 40 years before that initial impression to go see his brethren, and then 40 years after his time in Midian, at the burning bush pointing him in the right direction. Meanwhile, Aaron is fourscore and three years old when they spake unto Pharaoh. So a three-year difference between these brothers. Then verse 8, the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. So this is that sign that God had given Moses back on Sinai, the stick to snake. And remember he'd said, oh, the people will believe you, but if they don't, show them this. Well, the people did believe Moses, and he showed them that, but I think the order is important, that they received no witness till after the trial of their faith. Pharaoh, on the other hand, has the, the order reversed. There is no trial of faith on his part. There, there's no faith at all. There's nothing but a hardened heart. And so he's the one demanding this proof. Show a miracle for you, Moses. Okay, fine. But as a general authority once said, if somebody joins the church because of a miracle, it'll be a miracle if they stay. You see, the problem with sign-seeking is it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Not really. That was, that was Korahor's mistake, right? He saw the sign, he had the proof, but it didn't change his heart. And Alma saw through that. Same thing's happening here. Sign-seeking doesn't lead to faith. Yeah, it might lead to some mental acquiescence. Uh, you might be convinced in your head, at least temporarily. But you're not changed in your heart. Because it was a hardened heart that demanded the sign to begin with. And signs don't soften hearts. They just convince minds for a time. Well, Pharaoh remains unconvinced and unconverted. And in verse 11, after Moses and Aaron have changed their staff into a snake, Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt, and they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But then this important detail. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. You see, miracles are not mere enchantments. And prophets are not mere magicians or sorcerers or even just wise men of the world. There's so much more than that. I've heard some trying to make sense of this enchantment 
that there was some kind of way you could take a, a snake and kind of paralyze it for a moment. Stretch, I don't know how, how this works at all. Uh, but they would paralyze some kind of snake. And so it would look, if you stretch it out, it would look like a staff. Uh, and then when you threw it down on the ground, that kind of jolts the snake back into consciousness and it slithers away. So it looks like, it's been a snake the whole time, uh, but it looks like a rod for a moment. And then you pull your parlor trick. Well, this is no parlor trick on the part of Aaron or Moses. It really is a staff. And it really does change into a serpent. And one that swallows up the serpents of those sorcerers. Now that should tell us something also. That the truths of God will always swallow up the falsehoods of man. And if we'll simply wait with patience and faith to be able to see the aftermath of the truths that God has given us through lively oracles, then we will see, we will see them devour the false gods of the world. Just wait and see. Unfortunately, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened and he will not hearken unto the Lord. So let's try again. This is actually the third attempt on Moses and Aaron's part. The first was when they just showed up in Pharaoh's court and said, let my people go. And he's like, oh, they have all this time on their hands to go worship. Nah, how about they make bricks without straw? Second attempt was the one we just saw where they're showing a sign, but that doesn't move Pharaoh at all either. So third attempt, well, let's make something a little bit more drastic. And here we'll see an actual plague. The first of what would end up being 10, because it would, it would require that many, not to soften Pharaoh's heart, but ultimately to break it until there was nothing left to hold on to. In verse 14, here's plague number one. The Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And as we keep seeing through the JST, that's on him, not on me. He refuseth to let the people go. So here's the plan. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out unto the water, and thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come. And the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take in thine hand. I love that the Lord is telling Moses, you're going you're gonna to head Pharaoh off at the pass. I'll tell you exactly where he's going to be. Tomorrow morning he'll go down to the Nile. I need you to be there in advance. I need Pharaoh to know that he can run, but he can't hide. And even though he's trying to avoid you, you will be wherever he happens to look, haunting him almost with this warning word that you've got to let my people go. In verse 16, thou shalt say unto him, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldst not hear, so thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. There he repeats it again. This is about introducing myself to you, since you seem to be ignorant of my identity. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. So Pharaoh... You won't accept the living water? Fine. Then I will make sure you understand that there are no other alternatives for you to drink. Won't let my people go in peace? Then fine. I will have you wading in blood until there's no escaping that either. There was actually a fascinating moment just a day or two before the martyrdom. 
when Joseph Smith is in Carthage jail and these officers from the, the militias in Illinois come to just see their prisoner kind of gawk over uh, this so-called prophet of God in the 19th century. Well, when they meet Joseph, he asks them, well, does it look like I'm the, the scoundrel or rogue, that uh, the demon that people make me out to be? And they say, no, you don't, I'll, to be honest. You seem like a normal, upstanding person. But, well, that's just on the outside. We can't see your heart. And Joseph responds, you're right, but I can see yours. And let me tell you what I see. And his words might as well have been what Moses and Aaron were saying to Pharaoh that day at the banks of the Nile. Joseph tells them, I can see what is in your hearts and will tell you what I see. I see you thirst for blood and nothing but my blood will satisfy you. Inasmuch as you and the people thirst for blood, I prophesy in the name of the Lord that you shall witness scenes of blood and sorrow to your entire satisfaction. Your souls shall be perfectly satiated with blood and many of you who are now present shall have an opportunity to face the cannon's mouth from sources you think not of. And those people that desire this great evil upon me and my brethren shall be filled with regret and sorrow because of the scenes of desolation and distress that await them. They shall seek for peace and shall not be able to find it. Gentlemen, you will find what I have told you to be true. And in less than 20 years they would. As the Civil War erupted and the cannon's mouth introduced them to destruction and death like they never imagined, blood to satiate you, your thirst? Well, there's, there's Pharaoh by the Nile. This river is the lifeblood of Egypt. Well, soon it will be blood alone and not giving life. There is no way to avoid this unless you soften your heart and let God's people go. But Pharaoh refused. In verse 19, the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. No other options. This is like the darkness that consumed the land in a, among the Nephites between Jesus' death and resurrection. You have extinguished the light of the world and there are no other alternatives, not even your exceeding dry wood. No, no, it's not just the river Nile. Every pond, every pool, every stream, every river, there's nowhere to turn but toward the God of Israel. In 20, Moses and Aaron did so. As the Lord commanded, again, prophets always do, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh. I need you to see this. This is not going to be some coincidence. In the sight of his servants and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died and the river stank and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Satiating Pharaoh's thirst for blood, no doubt, but no way to satiate any thirst for water. Oh, oh well. Interesting sign there. Yes, more dramatic and more widespread than the little parlor trick you showed me with your stick. But I can do parlor tricks as well. And so magicians, come, show them. And sure enough, in verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. What water was left for them, I, I don't know. 
Obviously, theirs would have been on a much smaller scale. But regardless, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. You see, Pharaoh was past feeling, just like Laman and Lemuel. None of this was going to change anything as far as he was concerned. He's getting the proof that he demanded. Proof just doesn't change anything. Only faith does. Verse 23, Pharaoh turned, went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. A great way to describe this. He doesn't let any of it sink in. That hardened heart, which is set in its ways, he wouldn't set his heart to evidence to the contrary. All of your oh, rational explanations and all of your spiritual convictions seem to fall on deaf ears, or better said, on hardened hearts, because they just won't entertain the possibility that what you're saying might actually be true. In verse 24, they still have a problem to deal with, but they deal with it. All the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days were fulfilled after that the Lord had smitten the river. Huh, so I guess I was wrong. I had said that the plague was so widespread that there was no way around it. But evidently they found something. Yes, there's blood in every pond and every pool and every river and every stream, but well, why don't we just dig new wells of our own? Again, we will do anything to avoid having to drink from the wells of living water. Oh, let's just make our own. Surely there's a way to avoid the consequences of our sins. And we can find water to drink from other sources. Now with that, I need to pause the narrative before we move on to chapter 8 and see the more plagues develop to explain something that blew me away years and years ago when I first taught this in seminary. Um, See, here's the thing. We're always trying to liken scriptures unto us, right? Uh, there's just more ways to do that than one. And typically, I think, when we study the story of the plagues, who is Moses? Well, that's Jesus, the great deliverer. Stephen helped us with that, right? Who is Pharaoh? Well, that's Satan, right? And because we're the Israelites, we're the good guys that are under the bondage of sin. Yeah, that all makes sense. Okay, I'm seeing the, the metaphor unfold. I'm the Israelite, and I'm under the bondage of sin. Satan won't let me go, but Jesus steps in and intercedes. He is my great deliverer. And through my repentance and through his grace and atonement, I can be freed and find my way to the promised land. Perfect. Well, that's a great way to read this, and I imagine that's probably the way we all do. But I remember that first time I was about to teach it to a bunch of teenagers. The, the, the Lord helped me see... This story from a perspective that had never crossed my mind before. Moses is still Jesus, okay? But think of it in the terms of, of this. What if Pharaoh isn't Satan? What if Pharaoh is you? What if Pharaoh is me? Well, wait, what? No, I'm, I'm the good guy here. I'm the one trapped by sin. Well, yeah, but how good are we at repenting? Because how's this for a wrinkle? If I'm Pharaoh, then what are the Israelites? What is it that God, true messengers, are constantly telling me to let go? Ah, oh, they're always telling me to let go of my sins. 
to let go of the natural man or woman within me. They are pleading with me. And what's keeping me from doing it? Is it that I don't know the Lord? Is that I'm, fear, I'm afraid that he's my judge instead of my deliverer? What keeps me from repenting and just letting my sins go? So let's follow, keep an eye on that through the remainder of what we see through all of these plagues. Because it's amazing how applicable this becomes. Uh, instead of just chiding Pharaoh, like, why wouldn't you let the people go? Look inward, see yourself in the mirror. Lord, is it I? Yikes, it is. And do I come up with the same kinds of excuses? Do I make the same kind of false promises that, okay, fine, I will. I'll let those sins go. And then I don't end up doing it. I, honestly, I think this angle, uh, looking at it from this perspective, will change the story and make it so much more powerful by making it so much more personal. In fact, I remember years ago reading uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, classic book. And as I read it, I realized, well, this book is incredible in terms of what it teaches about failure or unwillingness to repent especially when it comes to addictive sin. My wife works in addiction recovery, and I've told her, you've got to have your patients read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. With that, I plant the seed and just tell them, this is a book about addiction. This is a book about the two sides of us, the spiritual man or woman of God and the natural man or woman of the flesh. And, and Dr. Jekyll doesn't want to turn into Mr. Hyde, but, but keeps giving in to him just one more time. I think I can keep him under control. And he allows me to do things I never could have done otherwise. And no one has to know. Again, go read the, the book. It's amazing. Through the lens of addiction. And in the same way, so is the story of Pharaoh. So yes, God is trying to set you free. But really, he's trying to convince you to set your sins free. To just let them go. And not make the excuses that Pharaoh tends to make. So keep that in mind as we study. Chapter 8, verse 1, we see the second plague. The Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, the one that you don't want to know yet, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all the borders with frogs, and the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and if that's not bad enough, into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. The frogs shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. So fine, you may have been able to find water elsewhere, but there's going to be no escaping these frogs. Can you imagine everywhere you look, there they are? hopping closer and closer and closer. This is kind of disgusting. This is, oh, unnerving here. And there, you, you close the door and you run into your bedroom and there they are in your bed. I remember coming back from a long day of missionary work and I w walked into my apartment bedroom and turned on the light switch just to see a rat scurry off my bed, off my pillow, uh, as soon as it, it was caught <laughs> out of the darkness. I was disgusted. Uh, well, I guess I'm going to have to flip the pillow over and sleep on the other side. Right? The missionaries feel kind of invincible. But uh, frogs everywhere? You open the pantry and they start hopping out of your food supply? Uh, you're, you're kneading the bread 
and what you thought was just a lump in the dough is, I mean, ugh, I don't even want to finish the sentence, but they're everywhere. There is no avoiding the consequence of sin. There might even be something symbolic to the, the, to the amphibious nature of a frog, that they are so comfortable in water, but they're equally comfortable on land. And I think sometimes we think we can keep our sins confined just to the river portions of our life. And it just flows on and away, and it's gone. I can just I can deal with it and forget about it. But when I leave the water and I'm back on land, right? We saw this back in the creation account, the division of sea and land, where sea is chaos and cultural currents, but land is solid, it's gospel ground. Are we living the, that two-sided life? Are we Jekyll and Hyde? And, well, yes, my water has become polluted, but my land can still stand firm. Oh, be careful. Because of the sins and weaknesses, the propensities that you felt you could confine to that aspect of your life are beginning to hop out. And they are just as able to infest your land as they are to infest your water. I guess iniquity is an amphibian as well. After all, Pharaoh, you haven't repented. The sin is still there. And though you might escape its consequences in one area of your life, the consequences seem to hop out in the most unexpected places if the underlying sin remains. You have to repent all the way down. Well, unfortunately, these enterprising magicians are able to pull off a similar sign. Again, I imagine on a much smaller scale. But... That's all that Pharaoh needs to feel justified in his obstinance. Oh, you have parlor tricks just like I do. I will not let your people go. Come back to me when you can do something that my magicians can't. Well, funny you'd say that, Pharaoh, because in verse 8, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. He's the one initiating the conversation now. And said, entreat the Lord. Yeah, the one that I refuse to acknowledge. I'm acknowledging him now that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Evidently, the magicians that were able to call forth the frogs weren't able to get rid of them. Oh, maybe the Nile can take care of itself. Again, the water flows, and so after a period of pollution, that just wait for upstream second chances to come, and it'll clear things out. But there was no way that they could overcome the plague of frogs. Now, I'll, I'll say something here. To this point, Pharaoh might have, oh, reassured himself that these are just natural consequences. I don't totally understand how, but I mean, my magicians must. They're wise men after all. And, and I mean, there could have been pollution upstream. And so some, I mean, surely that's what my my magicians are doing. It's not literal blood. Nobody can change that. There's no alchemy possible for for water to blood, but some kind of oh, red clay or, or some, some powder that you throw in there with some sleight of hand and then it sure looks like blood. Okay, I don't have any idea how Moses and Aaron were able to pull this off on the level that they did, but if there's some kind of natural explanation for this, of what the Israelites did upstream, and now it comes down, they, how oh, surely, surely there's a better explanation, a rational explanation for all of this. Oh, and in fact, come to think of it, if the river is polluted, then of course the frogs are going to come out of it. Of course the fish are going to die and begin to stink, and the frogs that can, that can survive out of the river will get out of the river to do so. 
And where else they, are they going to go? Well, anywhere they want to. Oh yeah, of course, <laughs> some God of Israel, whatever. This is a natural explanation. Well, this is where it becomes a little less natural. Again, there's no way for my magicians to get rid of this, but Moses, if your God can, then this is going to allow for some, uh, a less natural explanation of things. Well, the way Moses responds makes that even more obvious. Because in verse 9, Moses says to Pharaoh, Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee, and for thy servants, and for thy people, to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only. Now, the King James language is tricky there. Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee? The NIV, New International Version, makes it a little more clear. It says, I leave to you the honor of setting the time. So, glory over me, that's I leave you the honor. When shall I entreat? That's you get to set the time. Again, I think Moses is trying to prove to Pharaoh these are not natural consequences or rational explanations. Because yes, pollution would cause frogs to emerge, but that has nothing to do with timing of it all. And so as far as it's returned to normalcy, when would you like that to occur? You set the time. And that way you'll know that it's not just a coincidence that this is all happening. This is a God of Israel behind it all. A God you need to come to know. In fact, that's another angle. Maybe that's something Moses is trying to accomplish for Pharaoh's sake. I want you not only to come to know God, I'm going to let you participate with him in saving your kingdom. I'll give you the glory of setting the time of deliverance. I honestly wonder if Moses is trying to help Pharaoh save face. Uh, we're going to leave you, but that doesn't mean we have to leave on as enemies, on, on hard terms. If I let you participate, then you can turn to your people and say, you know, Moses and I have come to an agreement. Again, the people only 80 years, excuse me, 40 years have passed. I imagine the old timers at least still remember Moses, a man of great power and deed, mighty deeds in, there in Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt after all. And perhaps now Moses and Pharaoh have come to an agreement on how to save the kingdom. Wonderful. And Pharaoh's a, my mighty Pharaoh is part of this solution? Excellent. I wonder, is Moses helping Pharaoh come to know the God of Israel? So that there's some kind of amicable departure that would change the history of Israel. Is Moses and God, of course, trying to do the least damage in order to bring about the most good? Pharaoh, you can be on our side. Well, Pharaoh responds in verse 10, tomorrow. That's when I want it to happen. And Moses responds, great, be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. There's that phrase again. You will know. Sure enough, the next day, Moses and Aaron spread out their arms with the rod of God and, and the frogs all die. The Egyptians gathered them together upon heaps and the land stank. Oh yeah, it would. You can imagine all those rotting frog carcasses. It's disgusting. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Now, isn't that so true to form? I mean, this is Dr. Jekyll telling Mr. Hyde, okay, we got into trouble last night and we can, I can never go back to you again. Well, maybe. When things calm down and get back to normal, we start to forget how bad it was 
when we were stuck in sin. Have you ever done that? Have you ever rationalized away the need to repent? That when things are really hard and you're really feeling the consequences of your sins, and it's like, I will never do that again. What was I thinking? But then when life gets back to normal and those heavy consequences have been taken off your back, do we forget how bad it was? Do we kind of, well, this is a dog returning to its vomit. This is a pig going back to wallowing in the mire. This is us thinking, it wasn't that bad, surely, because we've forgotten the consequences of sin. So we fall back into it. That's exactly what's happening with Pharaoh here. So what's it going to take? How about another plague? In verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Now perhaps here, Pharaoh is going to say the same stuff he says before, about natural causes and rational explanations. And of course, if there's pollution in the river and it brings out the frogs, it was only a matter of time. If frogs can't get back to the water, they'll die on the land. Uh, and if you've got all these rotting frog carcasses, then of course they're going to breed maggots or lice or whatever kind of pestilence is spreading among us. Oh, don't chalk it up to God and consequences for unrepentant sin. This is just normal kind of life cycles and, and we'll get through it. We'll get past it. In fact, magicians show that you can do the same kind of parlor trick. Well, we're seeing a differentiation more and more between men of God and magicians of Pharaoh, between <laughs> true prophets and, and false. And just like we saw the, the snake of Aaron gobble up, devour the serpents of the magicians, and just like we saw last time, okay, we could, we could bring on the problem, we just can't resolve the problem. And that describes a lot of the world's efforts at things like, oh yeah, we can keep doing damage. We can, we, we're really good at making things worse. We just have a lot harder time making anything better. And that was the problem with, with the frogs. Now, notice what happens in 18. The magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice. At least they tried to. But they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Their God, not our false ones. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That was its natural state. And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So like I said, this is the first time that the Egyptian magicians cannot mimic what Moses and Aaron have done, even on a small scale. Uh, something's going on here. We thought that they just had tricks up their sleeve like we do. They just were better at the sleight of hand. But no, we're starting to understand that these are true messengers from a true God. This isn't manufactured. It's not fake. There's something to this that we cannot create ourselves. Often I've had people come into my office that are in the middle of faith crisis, and if they're gone far enough in it, they no longer doubt only the propositional things of the church, but it's gone from specific issues to general concern, and it's gone from the, I call it, the, from the propositional to the epistemological. Sorry for the jargon. Propositional is I doubt these propositions. I can't sign off on the 13 Articles of Faith, for example. Epistemological is I doubt the whole way you're coming to, to know anything. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we say we know? And when doubt becomes an epistemological issue for people that have left the church or are struggling in their faith, then your testimony won't do them any good. 
you're saying, but, but God has let me know. The Spirit has confirmed. Because they don't believe in the Spirit anymore. Uh, and they have reframed. That's one of the things that people sometimes wonder. It's like, you've had spiritual experiences. How can you doubt? It's like, well, because I'm now reframing the, those old spiritual experiences. I'm trying to look for natural causes to explain them all. And if it's just a, 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 a dopamine dump, if, I don't know, just like I'm watching a movie and it's a tearjerker, and so I move to feel some things emotionally, well, that's all the spirit is. Spirituality is just emotionality uh, put in religious garb. Or they'll say things like, the spirit? No, there's no Holy Ghost. That's just self-induced. You wanted it to be true, so you kind of will yourself into that, and you're manufacturing spiritual experience. Or they'll say, that's just confirmation bias. There's a natural explanation for all of these things. And they're all psychological, not spiritual. Well, when people have said that to me, and that's Pharaoh just saying, oh, it's pollution, and it's frogs, and it's lice, and it can all be explained. Uh, there comes a point when a, even a magician, when even a psychologist will say, actually, I used to think that was the case, but some things have happened to, to clarify that this cannot all be merely rationally explained. I've joked with people saying, if it's just self-induced, believe me, I'd be inducing all the time because I love the feeling of the Holy Ghost. But the fact that I can't induce it even in times when I desperately want to. In fact, in some times, it's ironic, the same people that are like, there's no spirit, uh, will sometimes complain, and I can't feel it. And it's like, wait a minute, I thought you said it was self-induced, then why don't you go ahead and do it? And do it. I've actually said that to some, if I can keep it non-confrontational. Uh, if we have a good relationship, and they're like, oh, it's just self-induced, I'll sometimes say, then do it. Induce it. Right here. I want to watch. I want to see you bring on the feelings of the Holy Ghost. Now, you can do that with mere emotion. Actors and actresses are amazing at it. They can make themselves cry when they're just on a, with green screen behind them. It's incredible. Uh, it makes it seem so real. And we can, we can fake sorrow. We can fake elation. There's all kinds of emotions that we can just muster on our own, self-induced. But if you have truly had the power of God and that sense of transcendence that goes beyond mere manufactured euphoria. Honestly, if, if you're wondering if it's just self-induced, perhaps it's been a while since God has truly stepped in and the Spirit has come with a burning bush kind of moment in your life. I hope, I hope that you'll turn aside to see the next time something occurs to give you a chance to remember that this is bigger than anything I can manufacture for myself. It isn't just confirmation bias, because sometimes the Spirit tells me things that I don't want to agree with, but I just know they come from God. Even the magicians are realizing that now. And I love the way they're pushing back to their own Pharaoh, saying, God is behind this. This is his finger. And Pharaoh doesn't care, which lets you know how Pharaoh was treating or viewing his magicians all along. You're just my yes-men. You're just my spokesman. I'm the God. You're the, you're the prophets. So I'm false God, false prophets, right? You're just supposed to convince the rest of the people that I'm right. 
I'm not asking you for advice. I'm asking you to rubber stamp the things that I'm making up myself. So you're excused. I don't need you anymore. Well, if plague three doesn't work, then we're on to plague four. And it's interesting to watch God escalate the consequences. Uh, if a still small voice wasn't sufficient for you, then where do, we, where do we go from here? Plague number four, Moses and Aaron, go warn Pharaoh about flies. If lice wasn't bad enough, how about flies? The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. So I want to make this crystal clear for you, Pharaoh. There's going to be a time factor like before. It's not going to be natural consequences, though you might think that that's the case. To make it even more clear, I want those so-called natural consequences only to affect you, natural men. Whereas the spiritual men and women of Israel will not be affected by these so-called natural consequences. No fly is there. Will that be a clear enough distinction for you to be able to discern between righteousness and wickedness, between sin and repentance, between Egyptians and Israelites? I'll let you decide. And by verse 24, the land was corrupted by reason of the swarms of flies. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron. So again, he's initiating it and said, go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. Now notice the last three words. You remember what they had said. We have to go out into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to the Lord our God. Well, he's giving an inch, but only an inch. Fine, get out. Um, I, we, can't, we, can't stop, we can't mimic it. We can't stop it. We can't turn it back. Fine, we cannot avoid the consequences of what we're doing. So go and do whatever token service you have to do to your God, but do it here in the land. I'm not going to let you go in the way you want to. And again, are we guilty of that? Fine, I'll add some token acts of discipleship. Uh, I don't want to decrease my debits, but maybe I can increase my credits. Now, I'm not going to eliminate sin, but can I, oh, I don't know, I'll go, I'll go offer sacrifice, I'll pay my tithing, or I'll go to church. I'll try to serve better in my calling. How's that? As long as you don't make me get rid of my sins. Not my favorite ones. I don't want to fully free myself from spiritual bondage. In verse 26, Moses responds, it, Sorry, we can't do that. It is not meet so to do. For we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? No, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. See how he ended it there? Sorry, Pharaoh, we can't do it your way. We have to do it God's way. We're going to do it as the Lord has commanded. But his explanation before, it's like, no, believe me, for our own good and yours, we can't do it here in the land because we're going to sacrifice animals that Egyptians hold dear. It, our sacrifice is their abomination. Our righteousness is considered wickedness in their eyes. Remember how Isaiah prophesied it would be that way? Such a topsy-turvy, upside-down morality or, 
or relativity, I guess we could say, that they would call good evil and evil good, and sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. It's just the upside down world that we live in. Israelites are going to try to do something righteous. The Egyptians will consider that wicked and will condemn them for it. Speaking of rulers and judges, right? Uh, we're seeing that today as well. The things that we consider right, the world considers wrong. And despite their, their claims of tolerance, there certainly isn't much tolerance for the standards we're trying to keep for ourselves. It's actually interesting. In about 59 or 60 BC, there was a Roman official that was in Egypt. I mean, it's all part of the Roman Empire at the time. And, and he accidentally killed a cat. Unfortunately, in Egypt, there are several deities that have cat heads. And cats were considered a divine animal. And even though it was an accident, and even though this is a Roman official, a mob assembles once the word spreads that a cat has been killed. And they end up killing the Roman official as a consequence. So you picture these Israelites, you know, Moses, like, uh-uh. I mean, you, the Egyptian pantheon has, has like animal gods for practically everything. And uh-uh. that, that will be an abomination to them. I think it's interesting, too, on his part, not just to preserve the safety of his people, but to preserve the, oh, the, to honor the perspective of his hosts, that this would be something, we're not trying to, to shake things up and shove our standards into other people's faces. Uh, can we... Can we leave three days journey into the wilderness and offer our sacrifices there? We're trying to be good disciples, but we're also trying to be good neighbors. And that can be a tough balance to strike. In verse 28, Pharaoh sees the wisdom of that, of that call. And he says, fine, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. But how's this for a caveat? Only ye shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. So fine. You can go, but don't go very far away. Can you picture yourself saying that to your sins? Okay, sorry. I know we have so much fun together, but we need to break this up. But maybe not forever. Yes, you need to leave, but don't go very far. Elder Holland once joked that uh, when we cast away our sins, sometimes we, we leave them with a forwarding address. Okay, we can't hang out for a while, but come back and visit me once things have died down a bit. And that seems to be exactly what Pharaoh is hoping for. Now in 29, Moses says, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people, tomorrow. So there's the time. But, he warns, let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. See what he's saying there? Oh, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. And you keep trying to fool me. You say you'll repent, and then you don't. You say you'll let the people go. With all these caveats and and conditions, no, our God is asking for unconditional surrender, complete submission to his will. And you're not doing that. That hardened heart has not softened yet, even though it keeps getting broken against the consequences of sin. Don't let it happen again. In fact, I'm not going to end this plague immediately. I'll let you spend a restless night wrestling with the swarms of flies everywhere. Have you ever tried to sleep when there's flies crawling or buzzing all around you? Well, 
you won't get much sleep tonight. And maybe that's a good thing, Pharaoh, because you have something to think about. Hopefully by tomorrow morning, you've made a better decision. Sure enough, the next day Moses prays, God removes all the flies until there remained not one. Wow, there's a miracle for you. The miracle that it was distinct. No flies in Goshen, but flies everywhere, everywhere else. Overnight, boom, in an instant, there's not a single fly left. And yet, Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Despite Moses' warning, he fell back into the same old trap. And sin, especially the sin that is addictive in nature, and that kind of describes them all when you think about it. Sinfulness is addictive. We just keep pushing the envelope unless we finally decide to fully repent. And Pharaoh's not doing it. So we turn a page, a new chapter begins, and it's still the same old Pharaoh as before. So, verse 1, chapter 9, plague number 5 begins. The Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. If you don't, then a deadly plague will fall upon all your animals. Everything else is, up to this point has kind of been a nuisance. Well, now it's going to be an actual loss, a major economic loss. Your animals will die. Verse 4, the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. We're going to see that differentiation clearly again. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. So he gives Pharaoh a warning so he can avoid these consequences if he so chooses. Complete protection for Israel, no protection for Egypt. And sure enough, verse 6, the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Now usually the difference isn't that stark. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The righteous can suffer and the wicked can prosper just like the reverse can be true. But there are times I need to make this crystal clear, especially for you hardened hearts and blind eyes. The Israelites aren't suffering the way you're suffering because they, they're not going against me in the way that you're going against me. And all of this could have been avoided. Now your animals are all dead. It's one thing for frogs to come and then die or lice to come and then disappear or uh, flies to swarm and then evaporate into the air or so it seems. Uh, no harm, no foul. No wonder you were able to sink back into your sins because the consequences weren't permanent. They weren't drastic enough. Well, let's change that. And now your animals are gone and there's no bringing them back. Now seven, Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. That suggests that Pharaoh must have heard reports. Like he, he's seen dead animals all around him in his territory. But wait a minute. Seriously? No dead animals in Goshen? Go, go if those reports are true, this, whoa, this God of Israel is really separating wheat from tares. Uh, go find out for sure. And so he sends his servants and they come back with that report. It's accurate. Cattle are alive and well in Goshen. And yet that makes Pharaoh still angrier. The truth is becoming more and more obvious. 
but he still won't budge. So, another plague. Verse 8, the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron. Now, actually pay attention to this. This is the first time we've seen Aaron for a while. Not since the plague of lice. It seems like God is weaning Moses off of his crutch. Doesn't need the rod quite so much. Doesn't need his spokesman quite so much. We'll see Aaron kind of come and go between some of these plagues. Uh, which I think is true to form as well. The days we feel more confident, I can do this on my own, and other times we fall back into our sense of inadequacy and we're looking around for help. Well, Aaron's back for this one. And the Lord tells them both, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. Make sure he sees this. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt and shall be a boil, breaking forth with blains. In other words, these are festering boils or blisters, open sores. This is going to be pretty nasty, pretty painful. And it's going to be upon man, upon beast, throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, you see how we're getting closer and closer? First, it was just temporary problems, but time passes. We can dig around some. We can wait for others to, to go away. We can pretend to repent and then go back to our, our sinful ways once some time has passed. Oh, now we've got some permanent damage. Our cattle are dead. But it's still at a distance. Okay, I, I lost some economics, but there's not anything personal I'm suffering. Well, now it's personal, and it's physical, and they are feeling the pain of the sins that they will not get rid of. By now, verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But still Pharaoh holds on to his hardened heart. Again, it's interesting to watch the evolution of the magicians and see this change. And now it just, please, they, they start to plead with Pharaoh. Please change. We'll see them do exactly that in just a moment. Plague number seven then erupts. God tells Moses to go back to Pharaoh. Tell them to let my people go. Till in verse 14, For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart. You can't shield yourself from these things forever. It's going to hit closer and closer to home. I want to get this into thine heart. Since that's the source of the problem. Just how hard it is. Can I soften it? Or will I have to break it? This plague will come upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. The absolute uniqueness of the God of Israel, doing things that not even the entire pantheon of Egypt can accomplish. Verse 15, Now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. How's that for irreversible consequences? And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. Other translations say, allowed you to remain or let you live. That's closer to it. God hasn't raised him up to be this obstinate. He didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. He just honored Pharaoh's agency and let him live, allowed him to remain. And here's why. To show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Your obstinance, your opposition, is only giving me more opportunity to prove my power. Moses is the positive witness for God's glory. 
Pharaoh is the negative witness, but they're both witnessing the same thing. A God of glory unlike anything anyone has ever seen. Verse 17, God continues to chasten Pharaoh. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go? Still feeling invincible, Pharaoh? That Egyptians are superior to Israelites, or that you and your gods are, are more powerful than the God of Israel? Well, we can change that. Verse 18, Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. These will be consequences beyond anything you've ever seen before. We're going from BB gun to bazooka, because nothing small is, is making a dent in that hardened heart. You will see hail descend from heaven. We're now dealing with atmospheric kinds of, of elements. A natural disaster with no natural explanation. To this point, maybe you're still holding on to your humanistic epistemology. You're still trying to chalk this all up to, to rational consequence. And pollution in the river, and the fish die, and the frogs leap out, and then they die breeding lice and flies, which then spread disease to the cattle, and they die. Uh, quit reminding me that it didn't happen in Goshen. Uh, and then that spreads to us, and so, of course, we're going to break out in blisters and sores. But we'll get better. Yeah, this will pass. Okay, fine. What's going to cause the hail? What's going to bring that on? When will you admit that there is a God in Israel? Verse 19, send therefore now, so go get the word out, Pharaoh, gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field, for upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them and they shall die. Now, back when the cattle died from plague number five, I think it was, remember they all died in Egypt, but none of them died in Israel. Makes you wonder when Pharaoh sent his servants to go find out if that, those reports were true, those impossible reports, and they are. Well, I guess there's still cattle in the land then. Fine. And this man who is bent on avoiding the consequences of sin finds another well to dig another source of his own personal prosperity. And so it's, I would imagine he's taking cattle from the Israelites to repopulate the, the Egyptian herds. Well, because here, when Moses tells him, there's going to be another way to distinguish because the hail will fall and destroy anything in its path, including any animals that remain outside. So send forth this report and gather the cattle in. Now, what I love about this is it's another chance for people to self-select. How exposed to the wrath of God will I be versus how sheltered do I decide to become by coming underneath his covering? Remember, to cover is to atone. So if I take these cattle indoors and they are covered, then they'll be preserved. Whereas if I ignore the warning I've been given, it's amazing how many of these are, this will happen tomorrow. You have a chance to avoid the consequences of your sins. If you'll just repent and let the people go. Uh, but if you don't, there will be hell to pay. The choice is the, uh, for the people now, not just for, for Pharaoh. 
It's almost like he's saying, I want you to start making, you need to take a poll of your people, Pharaoh, because there's not a lot of Egypt yet to preserve. And I'm really curious if popular opinion is beginning to shift in the Israelites' favor. After all, it's not just you in the palace that's had to deal with all of this. In some ways, you've probably been a bit protected from it. But your people are suffering with all of the consequences of these plagues of Egypt. Let's get the word out and see how they respond to, the, to it. Will they bring their cattle in? If they do, then guess what, Pharaoh? They believe me more than you. And they fear the God of Israel in ways that you should follow suit. So in 20, he that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, so it's his people, made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. So you willing to risk things, Pharaoh, and your people? Let's put, so, let's put a, you want to you bet? Let's do that. Let's make a friendly, or not so friendly in this case, wager about whether or not they'll be hailed tomorrow. Because if your people begin bringing in their animals, you'll know that they are coming to know the God of Israel, even if you refuse to. God does provide amazing ways to help us distinguish in ourselves and in others who believes and who has a hardened heart. Now in verse 23, Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail. It's happening already. The fire ran along the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now wait a minute. Fire with the hail? Yikes. I, I don't even know how to envision this. But... That part hadn't been told them. I wonder if Pharaoh's like, wait, 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 you, you, you talked about hail, but you didn't mention fire. Well, Pharaoh, would that have made a difference? Because I've been clearly specifying all the consequences of sin, and none of it makes a difference. I think sometimes you need to be reminded that there will come consequences that you could not have imagined. And yeah, you might think there's ways to, well, if I know that that's the result, I bet there's ways I can circumvent that. I can get around that consequence somehow. No, not all of them. Some perhaps, but there will come consequences unforeseen and unimagined. In 25, the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. You ever seen a, a rainstorm from a distance when you're not in it? It's weird. In most places that I've been, it's like the entire sky is overcast, and if there's rain one place, there's rain everywhere else. But to be in sunshine and see off in the distance where the rain is falling, that's kind of an eerie sight. And that's happening here where there's just kind of light shining down the eye of the storm in some ways you could describe it. And that's what, that's what repentance brings you. That's what hearkening to living prophets can offer. You will see chaos all around you, but you will be in the eye of the storm. The way that it's described in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, verse 54, 
Speaking of the last days, until that hour, there will be foolish virgins among the wise. We could say wheat among the tares. It's just kind of all mixed and mingled. But what happens at the end? At that hour cometh an entire separation of the righteous and the wicked. Someday you'll be able to tell. At harvest time is when wheat and tares fully distinguish. Till then, it's hard to tell. Well, by verse 27, Pharaoh can tell. And so he sends and calls for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. First time he's ever said that. The Lord of Israel, that is, is righteous. First time he's said that. And I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail. And I will let you go, and ye shall stay no longer. This is such a turning point. These are, there have been seven plagues. Seven is the number for totality, completeness, perfection, right? Seven days of creation. This is enough, he says. I get it. I have sinned. I am wicked. You are righteous. You're right. I'm wrong. And I will, I will surrender. Here's my white flag. Leave. I'll let the people go. But what has it taken? Egypt is no more. Basically, only Goshen remains. Just that eye of the storm and leave. I, I, I surrender. But did he really? Keep your eye out. Verse 29, Moses says unto him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord. So much more specific moment. It's going to make Moses' role that much more obvious. Just not tomorrow sometime. I'm going to walk out of the city, and as soon as I'm, I'm on my way out, I'll stretch my hands, and you will see. You will know. And the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that ye will not yet fear the Lord God. Interesting there that Moses knew Pharaoh's heart well enough to know that this wouldn't actually be the end of it all. It wouldn't be a perfect seven. It would go all the way to a complete ten. But I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. It's amazing how merciful the Lord is with us, even when he knows that this probably isn't the last time after all, even though we said it. We finally acknowledged our sin. We finally repented. We recognized God's righteousness and our wickedness, and we, said, we say it's enough. And he'll honor that. He'll honor our best intention, even when time will prove otherwise. Even knowing our, our worst selves, God will give us the benefit of that doubt. I hope we can do that for others. Well, verse 31, the flax and the barley were smitten, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was bold, but the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up. So many of the crops were destroyed, as promised, but there were a few that hadn't grown to the point that destruction would make a difference. Hmm. And I wonder if that's where the Lord or Moses knows, yeah, you haven't been completely reduced to zero, and that's probably going to be what it takes. You have to hit rock bottom. And there's a little bit of topsoil still before you hit bedrock. There's a few other crops that are yet to grow. And I do worry that once you see an out, you'll take it. 
And sure enough, it didn't even take that long. Moses stopped the plague, and when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Now the tragedy here is that the plagues could have stopped at seven. They could have changed, and there were still a few crops yet to grow. There was still some life left in the soil that could have brought Egypt back to some kind of sense of security and prosperity. They could have survived all of this. They could have grown back. But no, there would remain three plagues more. And these would be total destruction and darkness and death. Pharaoh, you could have avoided all of it. You were so close. You said it was enough. You acknowledged your sin. You said you would let the people go, but you didn't. And so chapter 10, here come the worst three plagues. Verse 1, the Lord said unto Moses, go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. Nope, I didn't do it. JST, he hath hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. That I may show these my signs before him, the King James says. The JST changes one word from that to therefore. Therefore, I might show these my signs before him. These signs weren't meant to convince Pharaoh, but rather to condemn him. They weren't meant to soften his heart because he wouldn't let them. They were meant to prove just how hard his heart had become. Nothing was going to change him. He was going to have to hit absolute rock bottom. A hard heart beating up against a hard, unbending consequence until it was completely broken, ground down to powder. Verse 2, that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. This is a story that will be told generation by generation, ever since, so that we can know, just like they did, that the Lord is God. In verse 3, Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me? That is the ultimate question. How long is this going to take, Pharaoh? How long until you'll change? You remember President Benson's words, That God will have a humble people. You can choose to be humble or you will be compelled to be humble. That's Alma 32. Your circumstances have brought you to your knees. Would you have bent them without having to be lowered to that condition? Pharaoh, what's it going to take? How long will you refuse to be humble? Because if you won't take off your pride, then you will be stripped of it. And the land of Egypt is being stripped of all that it had. In verse 4, If thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. There will truly be nothing left after this plague. So if you were holding out hope for the wheat and the rye, well, there'll be none of that. 
Locusts don't seem to care what they feast upon, and they will leave nothing in their wake. Verse 7, Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? When Pharaoh was the real snare all along. Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? His own people are now pleading with him. These same people that were, had been bringing in the cattle because they trusted Moses more than they trusted their own Pharaoh. Pharaoh, what are you trying to preserve? There's nothing left. At least give us a fighting chance to survive on whatever stubble remains. You took away their straw and forced them to, to work with stubble. Well, that's all that's left in the field for us. But if we can coax out the growth somehow and, and survive this, we can have a new start. God is giving, their God is giving us that chance. Take it, Pharaoh, or there'll be nothing left to save. In verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. And he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But, and here's his condition, Who are they that shall go? Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. Everyone, everything, let it go. Don't hold on to specific sins. Leave behind even your favorite ones. God intends to, to bring everything out of us. Verse 10, Pharaoh responds, angrily it seems. Now let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Now there again, the King James is tricky. The New Living Translation puts it this way. The Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. Oh, that's a clarification for you. See what Pharaoh is saying? Oh, you want, oh, I, I, get, I get it. Worship requires everyone, huh? And so you're trying to gather everything you own uh, and everyone that's connected to you. you. You need your women and children. Hmm. So there's no, no reason to come back to Egypt. If I let you go, uh, you're going to bring your flocks and your herds. Hmm, convenient. So you have something to live on when you're out there. I'm starting to worry that this three days in the wilderness is going to grow beyond it. And if I let you go, you would never come back. And I think that's often our biggest fear about real repentance. Permanent change? Ah, can I really live without that sin? Can't I just let it go for a while? or not very far, or not give up everything. No, you've got some evil plan, and I'm seeing through it. And so, verse 11, not so. Go now ye that are men, and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Moses and Aaron were. So again, you see what Pharaoh is doing here. He's drawing limits. I'll only let the men go. Only certain sins that I can afford to get rid of. But I'll keep the things that matter most to those men so that I'm assured of their return. None of this is meant to really affect change in Pharaoh. Well, verse 12, the locusts then come. They eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. In verse 14, very grievous were they. Before them there was no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. Consequences like you've never seen. In verse 15, they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. They did eat every herb of the land, all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees 
or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. And that seems to suggest that there's not even an eye of the storm left. Now that's going to be hard for Israel, or at least it would be if they weren't about to leave. But they're about to leave and God knows it. Uh, I wonder if the Lord is also closing up the eye of the storm because that might be one, Pharaoh's one ace in the hole. Uh, the thought of, well, there's still cattle in Goshen. There's still food in Goshen. Fine. Uh, let, the, the, let the swarms come. Let them devour everything in Egyptian land. But we'll still have a way out. And we'll just take over everything you have. If they took cattle before, now we'll just take your grain. We'll take, we'll take the life out of you. And you'll be the ones that die. Beyond that, I think there's also a lesson to, for us to learn that sometimes the righteous do indeed suffer right alongside the wicked through no fault of our own. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, the Lord says, The saints also shall hardly escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them. Even among the righteous, hardly escape. Joseph Smith described it in these terms. I explained concerning the coming of the Son of Man. Also, that it is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer. For all flesh is subject to suffer, and the righteous shall hardly escape. So that same phrase stuck in his mind. Still many of the saints will escape, for the just shall live by faith. Yet many of the righteous shall fall a prey to disease, to pestilence, etc. By reason of the weakness of the flesh, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God. So yes, some sharing of the temporal sufferings, but no sharing of the spiritual suffering. They will be spared those because of their righteousness and repentance. But be prepared, Israel. Some of these things you'll have to deal with yourself. So, verse 16, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. Come immediately. There is nothing left of Egypt to preserve. Those locusts have come and devoured everything. I am brought to my knees, so come he says to them, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Notice the second half of that. In a previous plague, he had, he had acknowledged, I've sinned against God. There's the vertical dimension. But now he adds, I've sinned against you. There's the horizontal aspect. Pharaoh has been breaking both of the two great commandments. Not loving God and not loving neighbor. And now he's repenting of both. Or so he claims. He goes on, Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin, only this once, and entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only. Did you catch that last promise? Just this once. Save me from this consequence alone. Oh, we'll see in a moment. It's still not the last one, but he's promising it is. And there's a Jekyll and Hyde kind of promise for you. This is the last time I'll need to repent. Because I promise this is the last time I'll sin. But is it? It wasn't for Pharaoh. But again, honoring him, uh, giving him the benefit of the doubt. Moses stretches forth his hands, calls upon God, and the wind blows and removes every last locust from Egypt. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. But again... Pharaoh hardened his heart. So plague 9, verse 21. The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. 
Here would be a suffocating blackness, a darkness that, oh, it's almost claustrophobic as it begins pressing in on you. Let the punishment fit the crime. Do you understand the darkness that has seeped into your soul, Pharaoh? A darkness that can be felt even by a hardened heart that seems so past feeling. There will be no light, no other alternatives to turn to. In verse 22, Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Sound like the three days of darkness among the Nephites at the death of Christ? They saw not one another. There's feeling alone. Neither rose any from his place for three days. There's being frozen with fear. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings, which is what Israel is always supposed to be, a light shining in the darkness. There in the dwellings of the people of God, brilliance, godly glow, a burning bush, something that allows us to come together, to see one another as we really are, and to, to shine as lights to the world. Verse 24, Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord. Fine, do it. Only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. So I'll give in a little, but not go all the way. You say you needed your wives and children, your flocks and herds. Well, fine, I'll let you take your wives and children, but not your flocks and herds. They stay as you go. Now, part of this might have been self-preservation on Pharaoh's part. There's nothing left to live on except what was there in Goshen. Fine, leave, but leave us with all you had before so we have something to live on. The other possibility is, if you really do intend to leave and leave for good, then fine. Then you starve in the wilderness like we would have starved here without all of your flocks and herds. There's a misery loves company kind of aspect there. If, if I can't have it, then no one can leave without these things. To which Moses responds in verse 25, Thou must give us, other translations say, Thou must let us keep, they're ours after all, also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not an hoof be left behind. For therefore must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until he come thither. Great things that Moses is saying there. On the one hand, it's like, no, we're going to offer sacrifice and burnt offerings, which means we need some flocks and herds. Okay? Uh, so we have to be able to hold on to those or we can't give God what he's asking. And come to think of it, we don't even totally know yet what he's going to ask for. That's what he means at the end. We know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. Sometimes we don't know in advance all that the Lord will ask of us. So we need to be prepared. That's what consecration is. Be prepared to sacrifice all. Bring everything you have as you come to God. And then be prepared to offer him anything he asks for. So i got to bring it all with me. Okay? I'm laying it all on the altar. I'm sure he'll leave some of it for me to live on. But I do, I'm not going to limit him as far as what he might ask for. So I have to bring everything. And I love the way he said it. We're not leaving a single hoof behind. Okay? Deal with that, Pharaoh. It all has to go. Every last sin. Or it's all being placed on the altar. Every last gift. It all belongs to God. 
This reminds me of Abraham when he goes and faces the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And the king of Sodom was offering, oh, keep all the treasure, all the spoils of war. Whereas the king of Salem was asking, asking for tithes. And remember, Abraham gave tithes of all and didn't want a single thread or shoe latchet of what belonged to, to Sodom. Same thing here, not a single hoof. I want to go up to God with hands full of things to offer him. No sins to keep me away. And 28, the chapter ends with Pharaoh holding on to his hardened heart. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for in that day thou seest my face, thou shalt die. There's one last show of force, one last threat. I will not let those people go. Fine. If you won't take my offer, then I'm eliminating the entire deal. And if I ever see you again, I will destroy you. To which, unfazed, Moses responds, Thou hast spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. Unruffled, Moses is the master of the situation and turns and walks away. Only for us to turn to chapter 11 and see some preparation going on behind the scenes before the tenth and final plague erupts across Egypt. In verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go hence. In fact, when he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. He'll be so sick of what he's been going through then rather than try to hold on to you, he will push you out as quickly as he can. Just get out, be gone. There's no reason to hold on to you because there's nothing left to hold on to here. In verse 2, speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow, ask is a better translation, let every man ask of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver, jewels of gold. We saw them told about that last time. And so they do. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. That's an amazing statement at the end. Earlier they'd been told, yeah, I will soften the hearts of the Egyptians, your taskmasters. And since they haven't been paying you for your servitude all these centuries, this will be their last chance to discharge their debt. And so ask them for jewels of gold and silver and raiment, and they will heap it all upon you. Just get out, please. Uh, we have nothing left. I can't eat my jewels. I can't take my gold and silver, and they're worthless now to us. Take them and just get out, please. But I do love the end of that. For Moses was very great in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people of Egypt. That's why I suggested earlier on when, when Stephen was talking about, oh, he did these mighty works among the Egyptians. It's like, hmm, what, do they know something about Moses? And are they remembering this as Moses has now returned 40 years later? Is this, have you ever seen this in a sporting event where the opposition, the other team, this is an away game for them, and you've been a hostile crowd, but there's some hero uh, there on the court or out on the field who is doing such incredible things. It's like everybody loves an underdog story. And at this point, Moses has been 
the ultimate underdog and the Israelites slaves now being preserved and delivered by a God who's doing things that no one has ever seen before. This is mind blowing. And you see, again, if we're back in the sports analogy, picture some player on the other team that you've been yelling at and booing for so long, but he's so, I don't know, at the top of his game that it changes the view of the spectators. And when they go from booing to bowing, they, they go from yelling at to cheering for, and it's just, everything changes. I, that's happening here. And, and you see the, the, the crowd shift, and they turn on Pharaoh, who had turned against them long ago, and they start cheering on Moses and giving him all the gifts and things that they've been asking for. Now, before we go on and see how the Lord explains what the 10th plague is going to be, pause here on what just happened, because it's not just about discharging a debt. It's not just paying back Israel for their centuries of servitude. You can't really do that. There's no restitution there. But there's something more about these Egyptian riches. Because as we'll see in a coming week or two, when they get out to Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments, when they are told, among other things, to build a tabernacle and all of its implements, an Ark of the Covenant, a table of showbread, a, a candle stand, a, an incense altar, all of those things God commands to be made out of the best imaginable materials. And if you've been in slavery for centuries, you don't have any of those kinds of things. Ah, now it's making sense. Why are we supposed to plunder the riches of Egypt? So we have something to give to God. So that we have something to make him a house out of. With the best possible materials. Now, St. Augustine, uh, in the early church, coined that phrase of plundering the riches of Egypt. And he had oh, an interesting explanation for what he meant by that. You see, Augustine had been a very well-educated pagan before he became an even better educated Christian. And what he realized was his training, his academic background, which was largely in rhetoric. It's one of the reasons I love studying him. He just had a, mass, a way with language. And he had learned that uh, Roman oratory was famous for its, its understanding of rhetoric. You get Cicero and others. And, and Augustine was a master of the art. And he realized, I can use that now to defend Christianity. This is like a C.S. Lewis, equally eloquent, going from atheist to Anglican and realizing, I can defend the faith now. And in books like Mere Christianity or the Screwtape Letters or the Chronicles of Narnia, for that matter, Lewis, we always joke he's like the 13th apostle, right? Uh, the most quoted non-Latter-day Saint in general conference. Well, his words, his gifts, he placed them upon the Christian altar and the Lord received them with gratitude. And that's what the riches of Egypt can do. What Augustine was getting at was get the best education you can because God can use it. Honestly, when I was applying at Divinity School, they wondered, why do you want to do this? Why go through the pain of a PhD? And my answer to him, among other things, was more used would I be. I want to understand what the world has to offer by way of education. I want to know the world's questions so I can see the value of the Lord's answers. I want 
to learn as much as I possibly can because I feel like God can use me more. And humbly, I am grateful for the opportunities God has given me. I hope that whatever I've been able to read or learn over the years comes through in what I'm able to teach so that it actually helps people instead of just gathering dust in the cobwebs of my mind. That's what good teaching has to be preceded by a lot of good learning. And I'm grateful for incredible teachers throughout a lifetime of learning. But especially to go to a place like Vanderbilt and plunder its riches, incredible faculty, amazing resources, just I want the best education I can get. And then I'm going to do something with it to try to help build the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting about this is, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, before they build the tabernacle, they build the golden calf. And what do they use to make a golden calf? The same melted down jewels of silver and gold that were intended to build God a holy sanctuary. That's the, that's the choice we make. And sadly, I saw people struggle with that decision, even there at Divinity School themselves. What will I do with all that I've amassed? And that's not just true of education. That's true of worldly wealth or worldly wisdom. It's true of anything that, that Egypt has to offer you. And there's some incredible things. Again, Egypt was home to the, the greatest of magicians and sorcerers and wise men. They built the pyramids. They built the Temple of Karnak. Man is nothing. That never crossed their mind. Well, it needs to cross ours so that we can be true to our goals in getting that gold. What was it for to begin with? Because yes, I saw people preparing themselves through their education to go make a difference in the church. And some struggle and lose faith and end up I don't want to judge because these are friends and good people. And, but I do worry sometimes about the, the pull of golden calves and people that had the most noble intentions when they went out into the world. My brother-in-law describes this when he was at Harvard and saw people coming to Harvard as members of the church with this great desire to build the kingdom with the education that they would receive and the intellectual gifts that they had been given. They were ready to, they had come with the intention to consecrate. And many survived the experience and did exactly that. My brother-in-law is one of them. And so many of those close friends that he had that are now making a huge difference in the world and in the kingdom of God because of the education that they acquired. But there are others that ended up building golden calves instead of tabernacle implements with that same education that God had, could have used for greater good. I do love that phrase, plunder the riches of Egypt. I often invite my students at the Institute to do exactly that. Here you are at school, get the best education you can, study hard, learn, but do it with an eye to consecration. Do it with God's house in mind rather than just your own. 
And if you are willing to lay those things upon the altar, if you will seek first for the kingdom of God, then all these other things will be added unto you. If before ye seek for riches or degrees or popularity or power or prestige or anything else, if before you seek for those things, you will seek for the kingdom of God. And then after you have obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain these things if you seek them, for ye will seek them with the intent to do good. I love how Jacob says that in Jacob too. It's so powerful. He doesn't say, and, but don't forget, thou shalt seek them for the intent to do good. No, you will seek them with the intent to do good. I know that. How do I know? Because you've already obtained a hope in Christ. That's why you were pursuing riches or wisdom or anything else to begin with. And if your heart is in the right place, and if you keep it that way, then the riches of Egypt will never come back to bite you. They'll never end up being a golden calf. Instead, they will become the glorious tabernacle of God. And you'll make a difference in his kingdom. So my friends, go plunder the riches of Egypt. Just make sure you determine in advance what you'll be using them for. Now, verse 4, we get back to our story. Moses says, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight, there's some second coming symbolism for you, will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. Now, this is going to be, I mean, no wonder this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, there's no more camels. There's no more straw. No wonder this is the one that's going to break Pharaoh's heart. The one that was hardened against every other thing. Because it's going to hit home. Remember, the plagues will enter into your own heart. Is that the only thing you love? You obviously don't love your people since they're suffering unimaginably. It seems like you don't even love your own kingdom because there's nothing left of it. Is there anything left that you love, Pharaoh? Ah, you aren't being a good father to your people, but if you still have a glimpse of fatherly feeling for your own son, then please preserve him by treating the people of Israel like the sons and daughters of God that they really are. Recognize this shared humanity and lean into it. Even if it's self-preservation for your own son, if it, allows, if it enables you to preserve my sons and daughters too, then so be it. I'll even work within that. But if you don't, then there will be death behind every door. From highest to lowest, the firstborn will die. Interesting, and we'll see a lot more focus on the firstborn in the last few chapters we'll study today. Why that? Well, firstborn is birthright. Firstborn is future. Firstborn is passing down the name and the family name and the family business as we've been talking about. Can you imagine if every firstborn across every family in Egypt died? Everything changes. This is a social upheaval on such a massive level. I mean, civilization-wide. And people that never thought that they'd be in charge all of a sudden will be. And people who, we put all our eggs in that firstborn's basket, they're going to lead the next generation and they're gone? This is society itself overturned. This is tradition toppled and 
and turned onto its head. Everything's going to change here because Egypt will have to have a new beginning. The world started over again with all the firstborn gone. In verse 6, as a result, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. A day of mourning, a day of loss, a day of regret. Not a day of repentance. Too late for that. Verse 7, against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. There's that same severing, that same distinguishing between good and evil, light and darkness, right and wrong. But not even a dog will move his tongue. There's an interesting idiom. I mean, out in the heat, dogs are panting and their tongues are just wagging all the time. Tongue's always kind of out of the mouth, right? And yet not even that. You want to talk about complete stillness. Dogs pant and move those tongues because they're breathing. Well, imagine all of Israel in this breathless hope that this kind of consequence will pass them over. How oh, as the angels of destruction are performing their work throughout Egypt, are we breathless? Are we hoping against hope? Even the, to the point the dogs themselves are not moving the tongue. Verse 8, And all these thy servants, so your own people, Pharaoh, shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me. People that used to bow before you will now bow to me. People that cared for the Egyptian pantheon will now come to know the God of Israel. And what will they say to me, Pharaoh? They'll say, get thee out and all the people that follow thee. And after that, I will go out and there's nothing you'll be able to do to stop me. With that, Moses went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. Now there's righteous indignation for you. I tried to give you outs ever since I got here. It could have been so simple. Just let my people go and sacrifice in the wilderness. Treat us like human beings. Well, you haven't. You brought us down to the level of beasts of burden, and now you're going to be brought down to a similar state. You could have avoided this whole thing if you'd repented. But Pharaoh didn't. Yet again, he hardens his heart. And then in verse 12, the longest chapter of our, our study this week, we see this passing over that I hinted at a moment ago. You see round after round of preparation on Moses' part as he explains things to the people of Israel. It's like this. I mean, when you repeat instructions over and over, there's a sense that you have to get this right. There is no wiggle room here. That's all Pharaoh's been reaching for is wiggle room every chance that he can. And we have to prove our exact obedience. Yeah, even the dogs will be holding their breath. <laughs> okay, we got to get this right. So let me explain how this is going to work tonight. Otherwise, we will fall prey to the same things that, that Egypt will suffer. Verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 
There's some obvious symbolism. Here is a new beginning for Israel. Verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. You remember earlier the Hebrews were shepherds, even though that was an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, these are good shepherds, and they are well aware of the firstlings of their flocks. Verse 4, If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Now on the one hand, this just might be Israel avoiding the negative. We don't want to waste anything. And there's something important there too, recognizing every gift of God as a blessing not to be squandered. But on the more positive, let this meal be a form of communion. And so if there aren't enough of you in your small household to justify the death of a lamb, then invite your neighbors. And now this Passover meal can become a communion of sorts, where you are connecting vertically, the first great commandment, and connecting horizontally, leaning into the second. So this will be a communal meal. In verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, there's its purity, a male, it has to be a son, of the first year. That way its full potential still lies ahead. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So here it's set apart, not just from goats, but even from its own fellow sheep. This will be a lamb unlike anything else. Are you seeing all of the symbolism pointing to the Savior? The way Amulek, the way Amulek says it in the Book of Mormon, that every wit of the Law of Moses is meant to point forward to Jesus Christ. So look at every wit, look at every detail, and see if you can find symbolism pointing to the Savior. In verse 6, ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now, fourteenth day, if you're following the lunar calendar, and that's 28 days, then the fourteenth day is the midpoint. Ah, it's the meridian of times, as far as that month is concerned, that life cycle of the moon. And at that midpoint, that high point, that meridian, you're going to slay this firstling of the flock, this pure male lamb. And you're going to do it in the evening, a time of increasing darkness. Just as the darkness closes in at that high point of the month, a lamb without blemish will be offered so that people in bondage can finally go free. Okay. If you think about this final plague even, the death of the firstborn, something's going to die in every home. Either the firstling of the flock or the firstling of the family. Either way, death is what will usher in new life. No matter what happens and all the devastation that preceded with those other nine plagues, the only thing that will actually work to free slaves from bondage and point them in the direction of the promised land will be the death of the firstborn. And until that occurs, there is no hope for true deliverance. 
In verse 7, they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Do you remember in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph Smith is learning about the temple? And you're going to organize yourselves and prepare every needful thing. That's what's happening here. Men of Israel, families of Israel, you've got to organize yourselves, believe me. I'll be as clear as I can on the instructions. You're going to have to prepare every needful thing, so get this ready. That's why I'm going to give you a few days in advance to get it all prepared. Establish a house, a house of prayer and of fasting and of faith and of of glory and of God. But then he says in the very next verse in section 88, that your incomings may be in the name of the Lord and that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord. Every time you go in and out, it's supposed to be in the name of God. And so what will we do? We'll take this blood of this sacrificial animal and we will basically paint the door frame, the lintel above, the side posts, so that all our incomings and all of our outgoings, we will be passing through the blood of the Lamb. This will become our veil, which as the book of Hebrews explains, is the body of Christ. So that as we pass through that veil, out of a world of wickedness, into a promised land, coming into God's presence, we are passing through the body of an unblemished sacrifice. This Passover ritual is so rich with every element pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No wonder Jesus took his Passovers so seriously, especially the last one, which was a Last Supper Passover, which became a First Communion in terms of the sacrament. In verse 8, they shall eat the flesh in that night. So there is urgency. There is no waiting here. They must roast it with fire. Therefore, it will be purified. A baptism of blood and a baptism of fire. They will eat it with unleavened bread. Again, there's urgency. There's no time to let the bread rise. Oh, but if it rises, it also has the potential to decay. So no decay either. You'll eat it with bitter herbs, which will remind you ever after of the bitterness of bondage that I'm freeing you from. Thus they shall eat it. So many incredible elements here. Uh, if you've ever been able to participate in a Passover Seder, and Seder means order. It's very ordered, right? Organize yourself, prepare every needful thing. Moses is going to lay out the order in this very long chapter. But to have that ritual and to eat and to be reminded to taste and experience the bitter herbs to remind themselves of the bitterness of bondage in Egypt. It has to be tasted. It has to be experienced. This is condescension. This is compassion. This is Christ coming down to taste the bitter herbs himself. In verse 9, eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water. So don't boil it and don't eat it raw, but roast it with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. There's the internal organs. So again, there's fire here with cleansing agent, purifying fire. Verse 10, And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. So consume it all, everything. 
Don't leave anything out. This is complete consecration. Remember, not a single hoof am I going to leave behind. Pharaoh, you have to let every single Israelite go. Don't hold back a single sin. We don't pick and choose what parts of the Lord's feast we will come and partake of. We don't pick and choose which sins we'll hold on to and which we'll let go. Give it all to him. Then in verse 11, thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, I love the description there and the title. He calls it the Lord's Passover. That's what we're going to see. But the description of how we eat, it sounds a lot like meals today. We don't sit down and calmly enjoy a family dinner together. Uh, instead, we just grab something and eat it on the roads. Just stuff it in our mouths on the morning commute or whatever it might be. Well, we've missed something. We've lost something there. But for them, why so hasty? Why the sense of urgency? It's almost like you're eating dinner in a three-point stance, like sprinter's position. I'm ready to take off. But that's what they're ready to do. They are ready to take off and sprint out of their servitude. We've got to get to the promised land. And there's no waiting or wasting time. So let's gird up our loins. I, I love kind of acting this out with students because if you're wearing a long dress, you women would understand this. If you've worn a dress and you're trying to sprint, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, so what does it mean to gird up your loins? Well, if you bent over and grabbed the back side of your dress or your long robes and then pulled the back uh, hem forward and then tucked it into your belt, that's girding up your loins. You've just turned a dress or a robe into like MC Hammer parachute pants. <laughs> okay, try to envision that or don't. Uh, but there it is. Now it's kind of like big baggy pants and I can work without tripping up over, over my, the hem of my robe. I can run and, and not trip up over things. Well, if they've girded up their loins, if the shoes are on their feet, compare that to Jesus taking the, the sandals off his apostles so he can wash their feet. I need you to be clean. But will you rush toward repentance? Are you ready to flee from the bondage of sin? That's what Lot was supposed to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Flee. Get out. That was Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife. So, gird up your loins. Shoes on your feet. Staff in your hand. You're ready to run. By the way, loins girded about with truth. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This sounds a lot like the armor of God. Staff in hand. Oh, these are shepherds' staves to remain the good shepherd, to make sure every lost sheep makes its way out. There's beautiful imagery here and all that's going on. They're eating in some ways like soldiers. Uh, if you think about first responders that kind of have to learn to eat quick uh, and be ready to drop the food at a moment's notice if somebody calls out for help. These are men and women on a mission. There's a sense of urgency here. Because in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. These Egyptian gods, I don't know. <laughs> Pharaoh asked, who am I? Well, let me ask, who are they? Because talk about provincial deity that have no power. I am the Lord. 
and not just the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God of all the earth. I am that I am. And you can bank on it. I am, I exist and I will call into being. And part of that will be showing that every other so-called God doesn't exist at all. I am. They are not. There's been a lot of people who have created charts to show this. But it really is fascinating to see that every one of the ten plagues of Egypt is meant to target members of the Egyptian pantheon and show them up. We'll see the same thing when Elijah is up on, on the mount taking on the, the priests of Baal. And it does become this contest between deities. Well, the same thing's happening here. So how's this for the chart? Plague one, the Nile turns to blood. Hapi was the god of the Nile, a water bearer. Kanum was the guardian of the Nile's source. Osiris, the Nile was his own bloodstream. Well, it literally did turn to blood, showing the death of Osiris in many ways. The god of Israel could overcome all of those Egyptian gods and goddesses. Plague two was the frogs. Well, the Egyptians had a god with the head of a frog. Its name was Hecate, and it was the go a goddess of fertility and water. Plague three, lice coming from the dust. Well, Geb was the god of the earth. So picture the dust causing pestilence rather than bringing forth life. Flies were the fourth plague. And Kepri was the god of creation, the movement of the sun, rebirth. It had the head of a beetle. Uachit was a god of flies, but it was powerless against the god of Israel. Plague five, the cattle. Well, come on, Hathor. You have the head of a cow. You're the goddess of love and fertility, and yet everything's dying all around you. Plague six, the boils. Isis, I thought you were the goddess of medicine. Imhotep, you're the god of healing. Sekhmet, you're the goddess of epidemics. And yet all these Egyptian deities bow before the god of Israel, powerless to make a difference. Number seven, hail. Well, Nut is the goddess of the sky. Shu is the god of wind and air, but they can't do a thing. Plague eight, the locusts, Neper and Nepri are the god and goddess of grain, but the locusts consume all of it. Set is the god of disorder, <laughs> but talk about disorder. It's been unleashed by the god of Israel. Darkness as the ninth plague would have targeted Ra, the god of the sun. And there is no seeing him through this darkness that can be felt sent by the god of Israel. Finally, this tenth and last plague, the death of the firstborn, from Pharaoh on down. Pharaoh, I thought you were the ultimate god of Egypt. I thought you were the firstborn of Ra in this generation. But no, you may be god in human form in your mind. You may be the son of Ra, but there's no Ra and you're no son. And the first, you are powerless to preserve your own firstborn the one thing that your heart is actually set upon. Again, what had God said? Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Well, Egypt was coming to know that. And hopefully, Israel already knew it themselves, which is why they were given a way out, a chance to escape the consequences of Pharaoh's sins. Verse 13, we get back to instruction. The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So the blood would be a token, a token of a covenant God was making with Israel to preserve them. A reminder of the covenant God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to remember their posterity and bring them out of bondage and back to their land of promise. Do you remember the rainbow for Noah? Here is a token of the covenant. And as God says, I'm the one that's going to look at it. And when I see it, I will remember the promise I've made to Enoch and to you. This blood would be a token and God would see it and pass over. In verse 14, this day shall be unto you for a memorial. This is something worth commemorating, something worth remembering. You shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So this will be an ordinance more than just a festival or feast. This will be something set, something ordered, something explained to connect us to God through covenant. In verse 15, seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Now this is where the feast of the Passover becomes the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, there's, there's a distinction between the two, but over time, because they're one right after the other, a lot of times people just kind of refer to the whole thing either as Passover or the whole thing as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, it's one day plus the seven days, which just, for if, if you combine them, there's an eight-day festival that begins on the 14th day of the month, the meridian, the high point, and you have this Passover meal. But then starting the next day is seven days known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's why when you start Passover, again, eating dinner when you're in your three-point stance, your sprinter's position, uh, you're eating unleavened bread because there's no time to let it rise. And for the next seven days, you're going to keep eating unleavened bread. You're hasting your way out of Egypt, right? You are sprinting and not looking back, Lot's wife. You are trying to get out of here so you can head towards the land of promise. And there's going to be no time to wait for the next week. And so just keep eating unleavened bread. <laughs> Don't pause to let the bread rise. Now, the way it's described here as anyone who eats leaven is going to be cut off from Israel. Leaven sure seems to be a problem here. It's not just that we don't have time for it. It's that we've got to get it out. We've got to avoid it like the plague. Oh, yeah, the plague. How do we avoid this plague? By eliminating leaven from our lives. Now, leaven causes bread to rise. That's a good thing. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus will use the good side of leaven when he talks about uh, faith and testimony being placed within you and that leaven, leavening the lump. Uh, leaven can be a marvelous thing because it brings growth. Okay, But leaven can also be a, a problem because that growth can also lead to decay, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I've never seen a saltine cracker mold, but I do see bread get moldy after a while. And it's that yeast, that leaven that leads to that. So this is an example where yeast, where leaven can be a twofold, well, that's symbolism for you. It can have all kinds of layers of meaning. Just make sure you don't inject the negative possibility in the place where the positive one is supposed to be. Okay? Uh, when God says, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven put into a lump. It's like, wait, 
Is this bad? I'm, I'm trying to inject decay into people? No, not at all. Or in this case, you've got to clear out all the leaven in your life. Well, wait, isn't leaven like the growing agent? Like, okay, you don't want to grow up in God. No, that's not the case either. Let's get this straight. Uh, leaven can be a good thing or a bad thing. Jesus uses it as a symbol for a good thing, growth. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's being used as a bad thing. Sin, decay. The whole lesson we've been studying about, about Pharaoh and letting the people go, it's about letting sin go. Let it Get it out of your life. Eliminate whatever would cause decay from within. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread is meant to clear out every crumb of iniquity from the household of Israel. We sometimes talk about spring cleaning. You've been cooped up uh, inside all winter long and, and things can get a little stagnant in here. But once spring comes and you can start opening the windows and letting some fresh air in, you can start pulling out the, the rugs and beating the dust out of them. You can clean. And it's interesting that the Feast of Unleavened Bread basically was spring cleaning, spring cleaning for ancient Israel. It still is for modern Israel. Because as part of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, those eight days in the spring, Easter time for Christians, Passover time for Jews, it's the chance to clean out everything. In, in Passover meals, often the, the mother or father in the family will even like hide in fairly conspicuous places, it's like Easter eggs, hide some, some bread, some cookies, some, some pastries, just something that's tasty but is obviously uh, has, has leaven, has yeast in it. And then they send the, the little kids on this kind of scavenger hunt of sorts to go find those last remaining pieces of leaven to be able to get rid of them, uh, either consume them or otherwise. The, the, the idea here then is how do we eliminate sin from our lives? And are we scrubbing everything down and looking in every nook and cranny for even the tiniest crumb? Pharaoh wouldn't do it. Israel is required to. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about. The fact it comes right on the heels of the Passover is beautiful to me. That really the only way you're going to be able to do this, fully eliminate sin from your life, is going to be by offering the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way you'll be able to truly have a spring cleaning worth talking about. Verse 16, the feast is then further explained. In the first day there shall be an holy convocation. There's a Sabbath for you. In the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. There's another Sabbath for you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat. That only may be done of you. Now, what I love about that is that these, this is a different kind of Sabbath. There were weekly Sabbaths that always came on the seventh day, but this one is going to be a first day and a seventh day after Passover, which is the 14th day of a month that is governed by the lunar cycle. And it's like, wait, what day of the week is this going to be on? I don't know. Uh, Easter's always on a Sunday, but Passover can be any day of the week. But the day after it, boom, it's a Sabbath, whether it's Saturday or not. And seven days later, boom, it's another Sabbath. Again, how do you eliminate sin from your life? Well, it's ushered in by the, the death of the firstborn, the blood of the Lamb, but it also needs to be surrounded by the sanctity of the Sabbath. And if you can bring in those days of rest, which is the fullness of God's glory, 
all surrounded with that, you'll lose your appetite for leaven. That day of rest is a rest from the cares of the world. It's a rest from the consequences of sin. It, it can be a rest from the pulls of the flesh and the tugs of the world and the appetite for things that we shouldn't be eating to begin with. That's a beautiful way to celebrate this sanctity. In verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Armies? These are a bunch of just freed slaves. But an army? Yes, the Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. And Israel, that's what you are. Why do you think I told you to gird up your loins and have your, your feet shod? I'm giving you the armor of God and you are my armies. God is elevating them in their own eyes. We're going to have to go conquer the promised land once we get there. So it's, you might as well begin thinking of yourself as the army of Israel already. Then verse 18 through 20, he repeats these commands about the leaven. That's how serious he is. We, not a crumb can be remaining. And then he repeats a bunch of these instructions yet again. Organize yourselves. Prepare every needful thing. In 21, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. I'm going to be more specific than I was last time. But are you remembering the instructions? You shall take a bunch of hyssop, which is kind of a long-stemmed, sort of grassy kind of plant, a paintbrush of sorts. Take that hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. I am staying on my side of this veil, dripping with the blood of the lamb that I have used hyssop plant to paint these beams. Hyssop was used to bring vinegar up to Jesus as his blood was beginning to stain the beams of that Roman cross. We'll see hyssop again in the book of Leviticus in a powerful way. So hold on to that symbol. But stay on your side of that veil because outside of it, outside this household of faith, there will be nothing but death. In verse 23, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door. Hence the name and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. You see, you are going to give the firstborn lamb. So God does not have to take the firstborn child. You are offering this freely. That's what sacrifice is for. They're then told to observe this feast forever, even when they finally arrive at the promised land. And are told in verse 26, it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshiped. It's amazing to me that they are banking on the curiosity of coming generations. You're going to do this forever. And Jews to this day are still celebrating Passover. Uh, we are still celebrating sacrament as a last supper, right? And there's, because it's so symbolic, that's the beauty of symbolism. Symbolism is, 
is banking on the curiosity of people who see it. And just hoping that people will lean into that curiosity and ask questions. What mean ye by this service? The temple is the great place of symbolic teaching in the church today. And God is hoping that we'll, ha we'll have questions to ask. And that our curiosity will compel us to study, to ponder, to turn aside to see. And so when there is ritual, when there is sacrament, when there is sacrifice, when there is tradition, whenever there is symbol, oh, it begs the question. So ask it. And when others ask the question, help them find the answers. Because this is how it's going to be passed on through the generations. Little children who are naturally inquisitive and notoriously curious. That's good. And we're doing all these strange things. And they're like, how come we're eating this? And what are we doing on the door? And what, what about that lamb? Why did we? So glad you asked. Gather around and let me tell you the story of real redemption. Let me tell the tale of deliverance from bondage. Children, sit down so I can bear you my testimony of the Lord's influence in my life. Let me teach you truth about forgiveness from sin. That this is the chance to be able to pass down these righteous remembrances to the next generation. And we intentional parents must be to be able to make sure that we are teaching these truths to our children as well. No wonder at the end the people bow their heads and worship. Oh, this is a glorious, this is something worth worshiping God over. This is something definitely worth remembering. In verse 29, it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. It happened just as prophesied from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. The worst imaginable consequence has finally come, though he'd been warned and forewarned and every other option before it comes to this, but you wouldn't change. Your heart had to be broken. You had to be reduced to absolute nothingness. And now there is a great cry everywhere. Because if there was no blood of the Lamb, no passing over by the destroying angel, then in every single house, someone is dead. As I work with people who are struggling with faith crisis, it's amazing how... There does, does seem to be a general cry throughout Zion. And fewer and further between are the houses wherein there is not at least one dead. And my heart goes out to every family in those circumstances. The blood of the Lamb is our only answer. And as we reach out in love, as we do pass down the, the, the stories of salvation, as we testify of God's delivering hand in our own lives, we have to wait sometimes for the 40 years. And Moses is starting to feel things again. We sometimes have to wait for another 40 years before they come back. 
but I do believe in a God who wipes every tear from every eye. I do believe that those cries will be replaced with cries of joy and gratitude as the Lamb himself now becomes Good Shepherd and begins bringing wandering sheep back home to the fold. I do have faith in that. In verse 31, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. By night, couldn't wait the same night of agony and anguish. He'd said he'd never see him again, but I have to. He calls them and says, rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord. And then this phrase, as ye have said. He repeats it in a moment. Take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Do you see Pharaoh reduced to absolute nothingness? And this is finally his unconditional surrender. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no, we'll only go a little bit. Uh, don't leave too far. Stay in the land. There's no, well, you can take this, but not that. It is go as you have said. And that to me is real repentance. When it's an unconditional surrender and it is, there's, I'm not repenting on my terms. I'm repenting on yours. I remember being a part of a church membership council with an amazing man who was fully repenting of sins. And it was interesting to talk to him about godly sorrow and, and what was required for a true broken heart and contrite spirit and asking him what godly sorrow looked like or felt like for him. His description was so humbling. It was so beautiful. It was profound. It was real repentance. In fact, we even asked, I was trying to explain to him that sometimes consequences are only need to be such that it brings us to a full understanding of what we've done. Uh, it's not oh, trying to get anger out of our system. It's not God venting. It's him trying to help us see just how serious sin is. And Pharaoh's been through all of that, right? But it was interesting to ask him if I, I remember saying one of the worst things we can do is be too just. But another worst thing is to be too merciful. In proving that set of contraries, you have to strike the Goldilocks zone, and it's very narrow at times. Too, too just, and people don't think they can repent. Too merciful, and people don't think they have to. And so how troubled by their sins should they be? And I was asking him, if he felt there was any kind of consequences that would help him the most. And it was interesting, as he said, you can do anything you need because I will go through anything I have to to become clean again. It was the most breathtaking, unconditional surrender I'd ever seen. Such submissiveness. He basically was saying, you can't be too harsh because I realize what I've done. And that openness to God's justice is what opened him to God's mercy. It's like, I don't have to be harsh. I don't have to push a consequence to the extreme. You understand. And your own remorse has, it's served the purpose of punishment. 
And you don't need to be punished. You need to be reassured. You need to be forgiven. It, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And, and to see what's happening here finally for Pharaoh, the unconditional surrender that was always expected of him. In verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we be all dead men. Oh, it would have been so much better to heed the prophet before reaching this point. If they had been this urgent at the beginning, instead of only this urgent at the end, they wouldn't have been dead men at all. In 34, the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. I mean, like they'd been warned, this is dinner in a three-point stance. You've already packed half the cooking utensils. Well, just eat it by hand and run. Just go. Is daily discipleship part of our 72-hour kit? Are our scriptures close enough at hand that we can just grab them on our, on our sprint out the door? Are we prepared to follow the Lord at the drop of a hat? At the slightest signal, it's time to come running. Well, on their way out, they do indeed ask their Egyptian, their former taskmasters, for their jewels of gold and silver. And sure enough, they get all that they ask for. Just get out and run, leave. We don't need it. No, there's not, it's not worth anything to us anymore. And thus they spoiled the Egyptians, plundering those riches, just like Augustine said. What will they do with them? Well, we'll wait for a later week to discover. Then verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot about 600,000 on foot that were men, besides children, and a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. Now that's a fascinating phrase, because as most scholars have pointed out, that mixed multitude that went with Israel were not all Israelites themselves. Remember we talked about the turning of the tide as Moses, the ultimate underdog, starts gaining the hearts and minds of the opposition. And, Israel, and Egyptians who realize they've been reduced to nothing. I want to hitch my wagon to, to theirs. I want to go wherever the people of God will go. Can their God be my God? Can their people be my people? And so they go with them. If you remember at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants last year from section 136, as God is speaking to modern Israel, beginning their exodus to their promised land, and he says to all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, and those who journey with them. Oh, there's the mixed multitude. And we want to invite all to come unto Christ. We want to lead a mixed multitude out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. How much or how little they want to believe all that we teach is up to them. But if they are looking for safety and security, if they're looking for greater happiness, peace, and rest, then come, you're all invited. Then verse 40 to 51, he starts repeating all these commandments about Passover over again, right? You've got to get it down. Verse 40, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So he squeezes in that chronology before repeating his instructions. And what I love about it is emphasizing, it's been four centuries plus that we've been struggling and suffering and feeling forgotten. But God has come down and here it is. Overnight, everything's changed. In the self-same day, 
we're free. I'm amazed that sometimes repentance can feel like it takes forever. Sometimes it does. But forgiveness doesn't take forever. Our part can take a long time. God's part can be instantaneous. There's that great verse in Mosiah where Alma the Younger says that after wading through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, the Lord in mercy hath seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burning, and I am born of God. You see the difference in those two verbs? To wade through tribulation sounds like a long slog. If you've ever waded through water, it slows you down. You just can't sprint. Wading through tribulation, repenting nigh unto death. That describes what, I mean, Israel, they hardly escaped. They suffered right along the Egyptians through some of those plagues and seeing all the destruction around them. Oh yeah, there's repenting nigh unto death. But what happened? God saw fit to snatch him. Wade is a slow verb. Snatch is a quick one. And repentance might be 430 years. It feels like it sometimes. But your forgiveness can come in the self-same day that the Lord knows that you are ready to be clean. Verse 42, then, It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. Great phrase. Is the sacrament to be much observed by us? Not only in terms of its frequency, but in terms of its intensity. Are we observing what's happening there? Are we observing what's taking place within our own soul? As that bread and water are sanctified unto the souls of those who partake of it. Is it making a difference? One worth remembering throughout the generations? In verse 43, the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover, which Jesus would turn into an ordinance of the sacrament. There shall no stranger eat thereof, but every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and an hired servant shall not eat thereof. Now, is this being unwelcoming? Is this being exclusivistic? No, it's for us, not for you. Actually, not at all. Because, yes, the stranger isn't supposed to eat of it. But if it's a servant, if it's anyone else, later he'll even include the, the strangers. As long as you're circumcised, then of course participate in the Passover. You're one of us now. So maybe among this mixed multitude, you all want to leave. Okay, you can participate in the freedom. But do you want to participate in understanding where the freedom comes from? Do you want to... Yes, you're looking forward to deliverance. Do you want to come to know the deliverer? Because you can make covenant with him. Remember Abraham and the souls that he had won as he brings them out of Haran to go to the promised land. Here's this mixed multitude. Here are strangers. Here are servants. Here are others. If you want to fully partake of the covenant, it's theirs for the taking. Be circumcised, and then you can participate fully in the Passover. Otherwise, you can still participate in the blessings of it. We're not trying to keep you from that. There's an interesting difference there. But I also love the thought of the sacrament in our day. Jesus was clear in the New, in the New Testament as well as in the Book of Mormon that we need to preserve the sanctity of the sacraments. Uh, and eating bread and water unworthily is drinking damnation to the soul. 
I remember that feeling that was tricky in the mission field when an investigator would finally come to church and the bread trays or the water trays were coming. And I'd often let them know, I mean, A, I'm not, not mine to judge, but I would often let them know not to get in their way, uh, but to say, you know, when the bread and water come by, don't feel obligated to take it. I think some people just, well, everyone else is doing this, and would it be awkward if I didn't? And just to reassure them, this is a renewal of the covenants we made at baptism. This is a reminder that we still need the atonement of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from our sin. Uh, this is our Passover feast every Sunday. And if you haven't made those covenants, there's no obligation. <laughs> In fact, there's no real reason to take the sacrament because you haven't made the covenant that we are now renewing, if that makes sense. And then I just kind of leave it to them. I guess what I'm saying to them and to us and what this verse is saying to me is that covenants need to mean something. And sacraments and ordinances need to mean something to us as well. In verse 46, In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Seems like each of these rounds of explanation builds on what was said before and then gives a little bit more detail. It's like kill the lamb and use the blood on the doorpost. Next round. Okay, remember that blood? You're supposed to use hyssop as your paintbrush. Okay, uh, this one, make sure that you eat it all and, and don't leave anything for the next day. Oh, and by the way, make sure you don't break any bones as you're preparing this lamb. Oh, I missed that part before. Well, that's the first time I've said it. Now, if you remember in the New Testament, John makes a point of pointing this out that the two thieves on the side of Jesus had their legs broken by the Roman soldiers to speed up the crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal way to kill people because you could last for days, worst case scenario. Uh, the pain is intense, but not enough to knock you out, typically, because that would be an easy out. Uh, it's enough, crucifixion is enough to kill you, but it does it so slowly, it draws out the agony as long as could be. Now, you basically suffocate, drowning in your own blood, and you have to hoist yourself up on the nails in your hands or on your, in your feet to be able to open the chest cavity enough to actually let your lungs expand. Romans were creative in their death penalties. And this was as bad as they could come up with. To speed the process then, you break the legs so that they can't... I mean, your legs are stronger than your arms. You can only do so many pull-ups. And so without legs to stand on, then you'll die faster. And since we're trying to speed up this process, since there's some high holy days to celebrate soon, we better end these crucifixions early. Oh well. Now, in Jesus' case, he had already expired. He had already given up the ghost. Yes, it was a voluntary act. He had the power to live and the power to die. And so the Roman soldiers came and realized because he was already dead, as proven by the spear piercing his side, there's no need to break any bones here. And that's when John points out, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. Oh yes, the early Christians understood who their Passover lamb really was. Verse 47 then, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Again, this is a communal kind of experience. 
And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. It's not a matter of racial difference. It's not a matter of you're in or, or, or out. It's simply a matter of have you taken upon yourself the covenant? And if you choose to, then it's as if you were born in the covenant like any other son or daughter of Israel. You strangers are strangers no more. That's Paul to the Ephesians, right? That you're no longer strangers or foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God. Because you've made a covenant. There's no difference. It's, he's broken down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, between member or non-member. It's all about the covenant. Verse 49, One law shall be to him that is home-born and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. So again, no difference. We're going to treat you all the same. It's just a matter of taking upon yourself the covenant. And then the chapter ends. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Ah, you're finally ready to come out of bondage and to a land of promise because you're finally able to obey every word of command with exactness. As the Lord commanded his true messengers, so did they. Once the same can be said of us, then the promised land lies ahead as well. Leaving us this week with just this final chapter, Exodus 13, as they emerge from Egyptian bondage. We'll see more of this unfold next week. Such a powerful uh, set of chapters to study then. But Exodus 13, verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. This is what I was talking about earlier, about why the firstborn. This is going to be a, a complete upheaval of the social order. But in this case, since among the Israelites the firstborn lived, well, they now belong to me, the Lord says, because they have been bought with a price. Without the Lord's intervention, then the firstborn would have died. In fact, without Christ, we all suffer spiritually. Spiritual death is, is unavoidable, inescapable without the Savior. But because the death that you deserved has been traded out for a life beyond anything you could imagine. Why? Because the lamb died instead of the firstborn. As I said, there would be a death in every home, either the firstling of the flock or the firstling of the family. But because you offered the lamb that took the place of the firstborn, then the firstborn belongs to me because I have purchased it with my own life's blood. I have redeemed it and bought it with a price, as Paul would say to the Corinthians. Well, that price was my life, but in response, I want their life. I took their place. Will they take mine? There's something powerful about the condescension to bring about the con-ascension and the role reversal where the Savior comes to suffer our sins so that we have the chance to see his salvation. 
this isn't about birth order in your family. This is about choosing a new parent, a father of the covenant, namely Jesus Christ. And by swapping out the firstborn for a more Christ-like version, you see what he's doing? He's rebooting the family. He's restarting the covenant. He's recreating the family business. And I now have Christ-like sons and daughters leading the way. People that have been redeemed by him. In verse 3, Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which he came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. Remember that part too. But remember this day. How could I forget? How could I forget? This changed centuries worth of slavery. And we are headed toward a land of promise given us by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to be more like them. Oh, back to the family business. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is then re-explained in 5 through 7. When you've entered the promised land, thou shalt keep this service in this month. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread. And in the seventh day shall it be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Again, remove all sin. Sabbath to start, Sabbath to end, surrounded by that sanctity. In fact, now that I think of it, seven days with no leaven for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, preceded by a day with no leaven, namely the Passover feast. That means there are eight days with no leaven present as you're then ready to head off on your journey. The first eight years of unaccountable experience. Eight days with no leaven. Eight years with no sin counted against you. I hope you're ready now to head off and navigate life in the wilderness. The promised land lies ahead, but there will be leaven all around you. Know how to navigate it. Verse 8, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. Did you see how personal that was? It's not just, this is what God did for Israel. No, this is what God did unto me when I came out from Egypt. I think we need to get past just telling church history stories or scripture stories and start teaching our children with a lot more personal ones so that they see the hand of God in your life up close and personal and not just the, the hand of the Lord in the lives of the ancients. He delivered me. Let me tell you about my Passover and my Exodus. Those personal pronouns will make such a difference. In verse 9, it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Now that verse is the source of another amazing Jewish tradition. In Hebrew, the word is tefillin. In Greek, the word is phylacteries. And what they were were these two boxes made of leather, small, kind of cube, uh, not quite. And then these leather straps that you would use to tie that box to your hand or to your head. As it said in that verse, it's supposed to be a sign on thine hand. It's supposed to be a memorial between thine eyes. 
And in those boxes would be written four scriptural texts. We just read one of them. We're about to read another of them. And the other two come from the book of Deuteronomy. But all four of those passages have to do with these, these messages on the, arm, on the hand and before the eye. Uh, something for constant reminder. In fact, it's really interesting the way it's become tradition. It's not explained here. It's not required strictly in, in the Hebrew Bible. But through the years of rabbinic commentary, they've described what to do with this, the leather straps. And it's really a, really a beautiful rich, uh, uh, symbol because they will wrap these leather straps around their arms in such a way that it makes the leather sheen and the letter Dalit and the letter Yod. And Sheen, Dalit, Yod together is what spells Shaddai, as in El Shaddai, this almighty God of Israel. And so they are literally spelling it out as a sign upon their hand. It is a memorial between their eyes. It is meant to help them remember. Uh, in some ways, is the garment not meant to do the same thing for us? A constant rem reminder. Isn't the sacrament supposed to be a constant reminder? Uh, your CTR ring, if you got one of those when you were in primary. Things to help us remember God. Now, it becomes a problem when it becomes an end in and of itself instead of the means to a far greater end. That's why Jesus chastises the scribes and Pharisees of his day for making broad their phylacteries. That's what he says in Matthew 23. You've taken these small boxes that are meant to just help you remember God. And instead you've enlarged them so they're so big you want everyone to remember you. And what an incredible servant of God you are and how holy you are. No, you're falling back to the same pride that Pharaoh succumbed to. No, we got to get past that. Uh, again, there's so many beautiful analogies. that I mean, Jesus was a practicing Jew. He was the Messiah himself, a Moses 2.0, and he lived all of these things. He lived the Passover. In fact, he cleansed the temple at Passover season. He made sure there was no leaven contaminating God's house as the Passover was about to begin. Oh, so many. New Testament next year is going to be awesome. And it'll be more awesome based on all that we've studied this year in the old. Okay, it's such a fulfillment of all of these things. Well, verse 10 Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. So constant reminders. Verse 11, It shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he swear unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee, that thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix. So the first to exit the womb. And every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be the Lord's. I joke about this with my oldest child. I'm the father of five. But only one of them made me a father, and that's my oldest daughter. And so she and I have always had fun with that connection that I helped make all of my kids, but only she made me a dad. <laughs> they all made me their dad, but she made me a dad to begin with. She opened the matrix. She passed through that veil for the first time in our family. And by so doing, she opened a path of life for younger siblings to to come. There's something beautiful about making someone a father, making someone a mother, and that's what we do with Jesus when we enter the covenant. Again, whether 
you were born in the house or adopted as a stranger. It's all about covenant. And as King Benjamin teaches so beautifully, by taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, we've chosen him as our father, then we are spiritually begotten of him. And if Christ is the father of our covenant, then the church, the church in the wilderness, as Stephen described it, then the church is our mother. And husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's all this great imagery there. But here they are, that firstborn is mine. Will they choose me to be theirs? There's the hope. And like I said, this no longer applies to the firstborn alone. This applies to anyone who chooses Christ and the church through covenant. In verse 13, every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. Now that's kind of an odd verse. Uh, okay, if, if it's the first thing of a donkey, of an ass, then that's okay. You can redeem it with a lamb instead. I wonder if part of this is, well, how many offspring does, a, does an ass have compared to a lamb? And is the Lord understanding that um, we're, not, we're not trying to break you with these sacrifices? Uh, he does the same thing with the poor in terms of sacrifice at childbirth. Mary and Joseph, so poor that they give birds instead of a beast uh, by way of sacrifice. So it can all come back down to a lamb in this case. Jesus is the lamb of God after all. But I do love, the second part is fascinating. If you don't redeem it, then you better break its neck. Like, wait, what? That, if I wasn't, I probably wasn't going to redeem it because I wanted to keep it for myself. Well, it doesn't do me any good if I end up breaking its neck. So I might as well have redeemed. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I should have sacrificed it because it's not going to do me any good if I hold out onto it myself. Was it Elder Maxwell that said the only things that God is asking us to sacrifice are the things that would be keeping us from him to begin with? No, just let it go. Let it go. And by offering, by redeeming things, you're the one that's going to end up being redeemed. In verse 14, And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come. Still these curious kids, right? Saying, what is this? Thou shalt say unto him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. Now, this is more than just, why are we doing this weird ritual? Why are we cleaning out all the leaven from our house? Why Passover and unleavened bread? But also this giving to, the, to God the firstling of every flock. Uh, offering to the Lord, redeeming the firstborn. You can picture a child like, why are you, why are we doing this? Why are we, ma we making these kinds of sacrifices? Well, let me tell you about that too. Do our children know why we pay tithing? Do our children know why we give a generous fast offering? Do they know why we sacrifice so much time and talent in magnifying our callings? I hope so. The better they understand it, the more willing they'll be to do it themselves. In verse 15, it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go. This is part of their answer to those inquisitive kids. That the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. We'll see this later when it comes to the tribe of Levi. Uh, what does it mean to redeem a child? instead of offering him as sacrifice. We'll see some beautiful things on that later. Either way, it's going to be life for life. 
I took your place, you now need to take mine, all you firstborn. In verse 16, again repeating the instructions about the tefillin, it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thine eyes. For by strength of hand the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. Think more about that symbolism. We sometimes talk about, oh, do you know that? Like the back of your hand? Well, if it's bound as a sign to your hand, do we know God's covenants like the back of our hand? Do we know his acts of deliverance in our lives and the lives of others that well? Do we know him who knows us? And the frontlets of their eyes, is deliverance always on our mind? We'll see beautiful imagery here in the, in the priestly attire of Aaron and his sons. It's amazing symbolism. But think about that, literally. Is it on your mind? In fact, is it between your eyes so that everything you see is passing through that kind of a lens of holiness to the Lord, of deliverance through Christ? It's just how I see. It's how I think. It's how I feel. It's what I am. It's what I do. There's my hands. In verse 17, the instructions are over and we're back to history now. It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, like get out of here, take all that you can and leave, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines. Although that was near, that's the shortcut, straight way to get there. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. And by repent, he doesn't mean sorry for sin. Repent as in uh, turn around and go back in the wrong direction. It's really interesting because, yeah, from Egypt to the promised land doesn't take 40 years. We'll see why it takes so long later. But there's a fast way if you just go right along the Mediterranean coast. But you're going through Philistine territory to get back to Canaan if you go that route. And I'm a little worried that, yes, I know I called you the army of Israel, but you're not quite army yet. And you've got some, some basic training to go through. Can we put it that way? So let's hold off on the shortcut. Let's take the long way around. We'll cross down further south. We'll have to pass through the Red Sea. We'll see that next week. Uh, and come around the east side of the Jordan River uh, and cross back over that way. Yes, it's a lot longer. Uh, sorry about that. But it is a lot safer. And I think it's a lot less scary for people that aren't quite ready for all that taking the promised land will require of them. I think sometimes we complain that discipleship takes so long. And we wonder why, you know, hasten the day of the second coming, or why are some blessings so slow in coming? And what I love about this hint in that verse is sometimes God really does make us take the long way around. But it's for our good. It's not to slow us down for no reason. It's to... Give us time to prepare for whatever blessing he's already promised us. Be, be, we need to be patient. The Lord knows the best route to take, even if it's the slow route. In verse 18, God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Harnessed means equipped for battle. So like I said, you might think you're ready to fight. You're not quite yet. Be patient. But I'm glad you're looking the part. Okay? Glad loins girt and, and shoes upon your feet and, and ready to rock. Glad you're harnessed. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Ah, had we forgotten about him? 
Moses hadn't. He took Joseph's bones, for he, Joseph, had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Remember that from the end of Genesis? Jacob, first of all, had said, do not bury me here in Egypt. Great place to, to eat, but not a place to settle down eternally. Bring me back to the land of promise. Bury me with my ancestors. And so Joseph and his brothers did exactly that. But then Joseph realizes, even though it's been a long, long time since I've been lived in Canaan, only spent the first 17 years of my life there, that is where I want to spend eternity, in God's land of promise. So however long you stay in Egypt, through regimes that know me and kings that know me not, when you do finally leave, since I know you will, I am sure of the promise of Moses. I'm sure of deliverance. Bring me with you. And Moses remembers. There's something about keeping our promises to the dead that we cannot get to the promised land unless we bring them with us. Think about that in terms of temple work. And it might convince you to spend less time thinking about golden calves and more time about tabernacle implements, right? And then finally, verse 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. Clouds in the desert especially would have provided hope for some shade or maybe even some rain. Fire would have provided them heat and light in the night, and God was providing all of those things for them shelter and hope and guidance and lighting their way. And best of all, that providence never had to stop because verse 22, he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. That is constant companionship. That is, I will not leave you. That is, I know that you are headed towards a promised land that you've never been to. And therefore, you don't know the way, but I do. And I came down to guide you every step. So cloud of smoke and pillar of fire. Oh, there is the presence of God pointing us home. Now, I hope that our study of these chapters has been something you see as applicable, relevant, inspiring. I pray that you have been prompted to let your sins go and stop making excuses for why we tend to hold on to them longer than we should. But we started today's lesson with a field trip to the New Testament. Can we end with a similar field trip? This time to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that hall of fame for faith. We saw the display for Abraham and Sarah and all of their incredible adventures of faith. Well, as we step into the room for Moses, Oh, the way it, he is described here in this Hall of Fame, focused on his faith, is a beautiful review of all that we've studied these past two weeks, as well as a, a preview of what we'll see next week. And so this is what we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. 
His parents' faith is what saved Moses. Faith overcoming fear. Verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. That is a mind-blowing passage. Our, our tour guide here in the Faith Hall of Fame has pointed out that Moses knew more than, than people think. That he esteemed the reproach of Christ better riches. Ooh, this is a Christian Old Testament prophet. Uh-huh. And, and what was he choosing? Again, he's choosing between Salem and Sodom. Again, he's choosing between the riches of Egypt, the golden, the golden calf and the tabernacle. He's, where do you place your focus? Where do you place your faith? I absolutely love those phrases. I would rather suffer with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, because that's all, as long as they last. I will look unto my brethren and, and join them. Join them even in their sufferings and sorrows. That was, that was Jesus. He set aside the riches of Egypt to come down and join the slaves so that he could then lift them and bring them all home. Then one last set of verses about this Moses display. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. No, he had felt so inadequate going in. Oh, it's just a stick, not a snake. Go in there. You'll come out fine. He did. We saw it today. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, essaying to do, were drowned, which is what we'll see next week. But to see him who is invisible, and to do that by faith, this is Moses peering past the burning bush and seeing the source of the voice that was behind it. This is Moses coming to know God and doing all within his power to make sure that Egypt would know the Lord as well. That phrase was repeated so many times in today's study. That they may know. Do we? I hope we don't have to come to know him through the plagues of Egypt. So many of which, by the way, are repeated whenever the scriptures talk about the last days. The book of Revelation, places in the Doctrine and Covenants, as it describes the apocalypse. Exodus is one of its sources. And elements of the plagues are repeated. Why? To reintroduce an ignorant world to the God that they have been ignorant of. I pray that for you and me it doesn't come to that. That we will choose to, to know God in the kinder ways that he makes himself manifest. In in lambs without blemish, in unleavened bread, in days of deliverance and times of forgiveness. I pray we will see him the next time we notice a cloud of smoke or a pillar of fire pointing the way forward. 
because that is him. He knows the way to the promised land. And all that's left for you and me to do is to follow.